Slithering Down the Rabbit Hole with Kyle and Russ from Brothers of the Serpent Podcast. Episode 9 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. It's not a good day to be a bad guy! Hello and welcome everyone to the podcast. I am your host Wayne along with my lovely co-host and wife Michelle. Hey there. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin where we cover such topics as UFOs, aliens, conspiracy theories, paranormal encounters, ghosts, the Michigan Dog Band, Bigfoot, and all things paranormal and strange in and around Michigan. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Hey everybody. Wow, do we have a show for you today, and apparently the UFO report has now been released. We haven't seen the actual report yet, but in the news today, we have a report about the report from NBC News, which was released just about an hour ago, and this will probably make a lot of people's blood boil. I know it did mine. I'm already having a bless your heart moment. Oh, and it's going to get much better. But first, I want to give a big thank you again to everyone who is sharing and spreading the word about the podcast. We continue to grow as a podcast and a community. This week alone, we have added another 130 members, and the week is still young. Amazing. A lot of people from around the world are interested in the paranormal and UFOs, and we welcome people from all around. So don't let the Michigan name in our podcast sway you. It's just because that's where we're based and we do like covering things in Michigan, but we're not limiting ourselves to just Michigan. So folks, if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you on the podcast. Yes, and also very happy to announce that our merch store is now active. So if you wish to support the podcast and wear some pretty cool swag, please make your way over to our merch store and check it out. Links to the store can be found in the show notes and on our Facebook pages and in the podcast description. Michelle, I'm almost afraid to ask, but I think it's that time, is it not? Yeah, it's the what's in the news. Yes. What is in the news? So through NBC News, an article has been released regarding the government report entitled UFO Report, Government Can't Explain 143 of the 144 Mysterious Flying Objects Blames Limited Data. The Department of Defense established the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force in August to investigate mysterious flying objects. So it's like uh, doing a road construction. There's one guy doing the work and a whole bunch of dudes standing around watching. I like to compare it to the, you know, the group work that I remember in college where you would have, you know, three, four, five people doing the work and really only one person did the work the other four went about doing their own thing but since august 
and only one has been deciphered. If it sounds like I'm clenching my jaw, I am. (laughs) The U.S. government can't explain 143 of the 144 cases of unidentified flying objects reported by military planes, according to a highly anticipated intelligence report released today. That report, released by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, was meant to shed light on the mystery of those dozens of flying objects spotted from 2004 to 2021, but instead said it didn't have adequate data to put all but one of them into a category. Again, explaining my bless your heart moment. Well, when I was in the military, we always had a joke Military intelligence, a contradiction in terms. It continues to this day. Well, it seems that that one UAP was a large deflating balloon, the report said. Sounds like the taking the 10 math problems and going after the easiest one. The others remain unexplained, the report, which was required by Congress While the report explicitly stated that unusual activity had been reported on multiple occasions, it also did not rule out that those incidents were the result of errors or spoofing. In a limited number of incidents, UAP reportedly appeared to exhibit unusual flight characteristics. These observations could be the result of sensor errors, spoofing, or observer misperception, and require additional rigorous analysis, the report said. And this is why they wonder that nobody wants to come out and talk about anything. So, observer misperception. Here, just take the pill and go back into the matrix. We've got this. Don't worry about it. The report does not mention aliens or even vaguely hint at an extraterrestrial explanation for the reported sightings, but makes clear that much of the phenomena may be beyond the existing means the government has to identify such objects. So they could probably tell everyone what I had for lunch last Tuesday, but they don't have the means identify such objects. A senior U.S. government official said ahead of the report's release Friday that we have no clear indication that there is any non-terrestrial explanation for them, but we will go wherever the data takes us. The official added, we do not have any data that indicates that any of these unidentified air phenomena are part of a foreign collection program nor do we have any data that is indicative of a major technological advancement by a potential adversary, in quotes. Last month, speaking about the upcoming report, officials told NBC News the government had not ruled out the possibility that the flying objects seen by U.S. military planes were highly advanced aircraft developed by other nations. These officials also said that the objects did not appear to be evidence of secret U.S. technology, but didn't definitely rule that out either. Okay, so even thinking back to what we saw, 
that one portion saying that the government had not ruled out the possibility that the flying objects seen were not from other nations. Okay, so maybe that would explain the the triangle over Ford Road and 275, you know, unless it was just out for, you know, a midnight run to Ikea. The report, however, said these unidentified aerial phenomena represented safety of flight issues and potential operational security issues. Parts of the report remain classified. So there is that term redacted coming out. You know, I was, I was told, oh, well, we were told, oh, you're going to be underwhelmed with this report. This isn't even underwhelmed. This is the, an insult to this is like golden, intelligence. Going to Golden Corral, getting a salad, and then just walking out. So nothing else. This is ridiculous. This is... I was hoping for a little bit better, but they can't explain 143 things. Underwhelmed. It sounds like the report went on the Atkins diet. There is a wide, wide range of phenomena that we observe that are ultimately put into the UAP category. There is not one single explanation for UAP. It's rather a series of things, the senior U.S. officials said Friday. The Department of Defense established the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force in August to investigate and gain insight into the nature and origins of unidentified flying objects. Earlier that year, the Department of Defense declassified three videos taken by Navy pilots, one from 2004 and two from 2015, that showed mysterious objects flying at high speeds across the sky. The level of snarkiness and sarcasm is alive and well in this podcast today. It is alive and well sitting right next to you as well. So even the videos by the Navy pilots, it could have been spoofing or their misperception. Let that sink in. But here's the thing, and and hopefully people realize this, but when there's an aircraft carrier out in the ocean, there's a fleet of support ships. These things don't operate by themselves. They have destroyers. They have anti-submarine warfare ships, sonar, radar, land-based radar, land-based aircraft. These ships don't operate in a in a like a bubble they they have all kinds of sensors and things because of the dangers that exist around these ships and so it takes more than just one sensor to detect something okay so if you have 30 sensors and one detects something out of 30 sensors then you probably figure that one thing has something wrong with it But if all the other sensors are detecting something and the eyeballs of the pilots are detecting something, chances are there's something there. But those items are within the 143 that they had no data on. So the aerial phenomena observed in the videos remain characterized as unidentified, Pentagon officials said in a statement at the time. 
The three videos had leaked years earlier, but Pentagon officials said they declassified the footage to clear up any misconceptions by the public on whether or not the footage that has been circulating was real or whether or not there is more to the videos. So they said the videos were real. NASA said the videos were real. There's something there. They want to look into it. So maybe that's the data that they need. No additional incidents or videos were released Friday as part of the report. Of course not. According to the report, there were 18 incidents reported in which the UAPs were seen featured some sort of unusual movement patterns or flight characteristics, including propulsion or other technology that wasn't evident and that could be advanced. 11 of the incident reports were near misses with military planes, the report said. So some UAP appeared to remain stationary in winds aloft, move against the wind, maneuver abruptly or move at considerable speed without discernible means of propulsion, the report said in describing those incidents. In a small number of cases, military aircraft systems processed radio frequency energy associated with UAP sightings, the report added. Now, the report also said there were was some clustering of UAP observations regarding shape, size, and particularly propulsion, and that UAP sightings also tended to cluster around U.S. training and testing grounds. The report, however, concluded that this may result from a collection bias as a result of focused attention, greater numbers of latest generation sensors operating in those areas, unit expectations, and guidance to report anomalies. All videos of the incidents that have so far been released remain unexplained, the report said. The report noted that the limited amount of anecdotal data as opposed to scientific data and inconsistencies in reporting due to the lack of a standardized system make evaluating UFOs a challenge. Okay, so basically the Intelligence Committee called up Neil deGrasse Tyson and said, what was that you said on Joe Rogan about UFOs? Because we want to use that. Can we just make a report out of that? And he said, yup, yup, yup. Well, I see the word standardized and my brain just goes right to standardized testing, you know, uh, my students. But as far as, you know, what do they compare it to? Well, of course, technology has advanced itself. The limited amount of high-quality reporting on unidentified aerial phenomena hampers our ability to draw firm conclusions about the nature or intent of UAP. The Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force considered a range of information on UAP described in U.S. military and and IC, the intelligence community, reporting. But because the reporting lacks sufficient specificity, ultimately recognized that a unique tailored reporting process was required to provide sufficient data for analysis of UAP events, the report said. We quite frankly have a bit of work yet to do in order to truly assess and address the threat posed by UAP, but they've had since last August. The senior U.S. official said Friday, not all UAP are the same thing. 
But they've been doing this for years. That's the thing. Everybody yeah. knows they've been doing Project Blue Book. I mean, they were just told last August that they had an assignment to do and when the deadline was. <sighs> Going on, the Pentagon, the report said, would prefer to rely on a scientific and data-driven approach to collecting information on the UAP instead of the anecdotal observations reported by military planes. Moment of silence. <laughs> to that end, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in the Pentagon are making efforts to create a new collection strategy to standardize data reporting on UFOs, according to the report. The agency said that they will update Congress on their progress within the next 90 days. This is just ridiculous. <laughs> This is just absolutely I just ridiculous. Can't. I can't. It's like asking for an extension on an assignment. It's like, we didn't get it right the first time. So can we have just like a three-month extension to maybe get things going here so we can yeah, look well, at the other 143 items? Basically, all the people out there that told us and, and that we saw... And they said underwhelmed, 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 was the, yeah. and this basically is... a whole lot of nothing that we already knew. Now, in all fairness, let me just say this is a report on NBC News in their politics section, eh, whatever, but it's a report about a report. We don't have the actual report just yet. So before I go completely off the wall and bonkers on this, I do want to see clock tower. <laughs> I do want to see the actual report and and read what it says. So, all right, Michelle. After <laughs> redacted, all that, redacted. I think we should do some shout outs. Our first shout out goes to Contact in the Desert 2021. This is a virtual event that is actually going on today through the 28th, but you'll actually have two weeks to view the event. If you are looking for information, check out contactinthedesert.com for more details. We'll jump over to our friends at the Midnight Truck Stop hosted by Big T and Blue Knight, a very cool couple of guys with a great concept as they explore those strange and unexplained incidents that so many of us have experienced while traveling alongside desolate highways give them a listen as they collect stories from all around the country from truckers and travelers alike then we go across the pond to the uk and we're going to give a shout out to phenomenon magazine the world's most recognized e-zine of its kind this is a free monthly publication produced by zohar entertainment group and m-a-p-i-t the magazine investigates the whole realm of the strange, profound, unknown, and unexplained, delving into paranormal, ufology, cryptozoology, parapsychology, and Fortean events. The magazine can be downloaded every month for free in PDF format. Check out the show notes for a link to the magazine. Oh, and you should be seeing something coming up in Phenomenon Magazine that includes your humble host of this podcast. So more details will follow. 
Then back over to our friends at the Lost in the Dark podcast hosted by Burton and Aaron. This is a pretty cool podcast that bills itself as an attempt to capture incredible conversations between best friends as we explore all of our passions, but especially music and the world of heavy metal. So if you're into paranormal investigations and loud heavy metal music, give them a listen. Strong language, but it's heavy metal and the paranormal. So what else would you expect? And last but not least, a very special shout out to Johanna James. She's an actress, comedian, ancient history geek, and British. Johanna has a YouTube channel where she explores the alternative history world in the search for evidence of high technology during ancient times. Her videos are filled with a wealth of information, but done in such a way that anyone can follow along, as well as being very witty and adding a comedic flair to her work. This is a great place to start with learning about the evidence for high technology that has since been lost in the sands of time. Go check out her YouTube channel. Simply search for Johanna James or find the link in our show notes. And spoiler alert, Johanna will be our special guest for episode 10. So make sure you check her out on YouTube. Well, we've asked for stories and sightings and explanations from the folks in our Facebook group, and we received a story from a young man and of an occurrence in 2015 when he was 21 years of age. So I would like to read this to you, take this into consideration Maybe something to explore, especially if you are from this particular area. He was 21 years of age, uh, living downstate in Parma, Michigan, and was working at a factory full time and going to college full time. So the hours for the job were from 2 p.m. to 12 a.m. and went to college from 7 a.m. to 12 p.m. This happened Wednesday in August. I got out of work and had about a 15 minute drive home. About five miles away from my house, there was a big cornfield, and I saw an extremely bright light in the middle of it. The color was something like I've never seen before. Orange, green, and purple, all at the same time, and about as bright as a welding arc. Just looking at it made me feel really sick and was blocked by trees shortly after. I got home, still feeling sick, and ended up going into the bathroom and throwing up what looked like tar. And it was the absolute worst taste I've ever tasted. After I threw up and showered, it was about 2 a.m. when I laid down to go to bed, still feeling really sick. I had a bunch of alarms set around 6 a.m. to get up for college in the morning. Now is for the really weird stuff. I had the most realistic dream, if it was a dream, where I was paralyzed and kind of phased through my ceiling. Next thing I know, I was in this room on what seemed to be a giant vet table with a really bright light right above me. I could see three silhouettes above me as well. All had extremely large heads, but that's all I could make out. I could talk, but I couldn't move still. They put something in my stomach and this scope type thing in my eye. 
When they went to retrieve the thing in my stomach, I remember one touched me, and the hand was very strange and freezing. I heard a very strange voice, and next thing I know, I woke up. But when I woke up, I wasn't in my bed. I was in the living room on the floor. I have never been a sleepwalker. I tried to ignore that and went to my room to grab my phone to see if I missed my alarms. My phone wouldn't turn on and I later found out the TV didn't work either. I went upstairs to see what time it was because, you know, rented from my dad at the time and he didn't get home from his job until about 5 p.m. every day. My dad was home and it was almost 7 p.m. I have never been one to even sleep six hours in a night. I was drenched in sweat when I woke up, so took a shower again and had a handprint with four fingers on my stomach and a huge bruise where they put the thing in my stomach. That's my story, and I still get freaked out thinking about it. I only sleep maybe two hours a night now. And he says, thanks for listening. Yeah, that's uh, quite the story. I had made a suggestion to him that maybe he could, even though this was many years ago, maybe he could find somebody, maybe go to a chiropractor or something along those lines that would maybe take an x-ray of his stomach for him to see if there was maybe anything left uh, behind for evidence. Or his primary care physician, someone... Well, the problem is an ultrasound or something. He went on to explain a little bit when he was uh, messaging me that he believes that people around him would just say that he's doing this for attention or that he's crazy or, you know, some combination of both of those things. So we're going to post this story on our Facebook group. And see if anybody can maybe add in some suggestions to uh, maybe help them out a little bit and um, just kind of let them know that there is a group here that will listen to his stories and concerns and maybe offer up some kind of suggestions or help. I, I definitely think he should get some type of counseling regardless of what other people think. I always think that's a good thing to do. Well, and here's the thing, you know, five or six years ago is really not that long ago. So if there's anyone in the Parma, Michigan area who is listening to this and who maybe you, saw something. Yeah. And you've got a similar story. I mean, this guy would love to have the support. Yeah, absolutely. So if anybody in the group has any suggestions or if you would like to email me and I can pass along any information you can, you can send an email to mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget that you can use that same email to send us any stories that you may have that you would like put into our new little segment communication corner. Yes. So with that being said, Let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsors. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Join me, George Norrie, for Contact in the Desert Worldwide Virtual UFO Conference, June 25th to the 28th. Contact in the Desert will be an epic weekend of exploration into UFOs, ancient alien civilizations, consciousness, AI, crop circles, and cutting-edge science. More than 130 presentations, 67 speakers, and two extra weeks to view our extraordinary lineup. Get your tickets today at contactinthedesert.com. It's time to make contact. Contactinthedesert.com. All right, Michelle, up next, I am super excited for our guest on our podcast this week. It is rabbit hole time, guys. Oh, man, do we go down the rabbit hole and all around the place. Please help us welcome to the podcast, Kyle and Russ. From the Brothers of the Serpent podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is with great privilege to welcome... The brothers of the serpent, Kyle and Russ. Guys, thanks for joining us. Hey, man, thanks. It's uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I got to start off by saying listening to your podcast is one of the big reasons why we wanted to get started into podcasting. So um, it's really an honor to have you guys on the show. Well, thank you. Uh, it's, it's interesting to hear people say that because you know we've said that to quite a few people uh about starting our show and so it's it's interesting to be on the other end of that so i'm glad this podcasting you know the podcasting is spreading around you know you listen to someone's show and you're like man i want to do that i want to join this conversation and uh i think that's what you guys are doing i listen to all your episodes and uh, i think it's great yeah i think i think you're right it's one of those things where i've listened to podcasts for a while and it's like man, not only do, do I get to know the people doing the podcasting just from listening, but it's like, man, I really could add in something here. I really want to talk to them because they just sound like cool people to talk to. So, Hey, here we go. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> so, yeah, I bet. So, you know, I know this is a, I'm supposed to be being interviewed on your show, but I'm going to be interviewing you guys too. You know, it's going to go back and forth here. So I, I, I've listened to your shows and, yeah. uh, I, I have to say, the I guess it was was it episode zero or episode one where you talked about your experience that happened a couple of years ago? That would have been episode zero. That was kind of like our pilot episode where we were just trying to figure out how to do the whole recording thing. And uh, we were like, well, let's see how this turns out. And, uh, <laughs> you know, where we go from here, then it was like, we need to buy microphones. We need to get a mixer, <laughs> you know. And it's just spiraled out of control. And then the responses we were getting from people just with that uh, episode zero was like, I guess people really want to listen to this stuff, you know? Yeah, well, it was weird. I I really liked the report of your experience. And yeah, I have two things to say about that. Number one, I like how you guys have done kind of the opposite of what it's not the opposite, but it's a different like we published. We started with episode two. Right. And I'm like looking at you yeah, and you're like episode you zero. That. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, you also don't <laughs> your 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 podcast doesn't start at episode one. That's just cool. 
Uh, right. Yeah. We had to, we had to go the other route and, and be like, look, if this is horrible, we can just say it's episode zero and then it never truly started. <laughs> it never uh, exists. Genius. <laughs> genius. That's what I'm saying. Wish we would have thought of that. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of where my first question I wanted to throw out at you guys is what made you guys decide to start doing a podcast that is now over 200 episodes strong. And man, I've got so much catching up to do too. I just got through episode 200 and, uh, uh, man, we, we got to talk about UFOs coming, you know, I'm going to save that for later, but right. what made you guys decide to, uh, get into podcasting yourselves? Well, I normally answer this question, but I want to see what Kyle says. Why don't you, why don't you take this one, buddy? <laughs> hey, man. It's not for, I'm gonna, it's not for the money and the chicks, is it? I'm going to go all hipster on you because I was listening to podcasts before there were podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, – it was the nature of, of our work. We were uh, contractors. I actually started doing this before Russ, but basically running machines, clearing land. And, uh, okay. You know, it was in the early days of MP3 players and, you know, I got one and uh, started out loading up music on it, but that quickly got boring. And uh, right. Russ introduced me to audiobooks, so I started digging around and finding audiobooks. And then from there, I started looking uh, for lectures on subjects that I was interested in, like college lectures so you could go on to university websites and find um yeah. free audio on you know economics or world history and uh all that kind of stuff so i was getting as much of that as i could and then um itunes came out with i guess the the podcasting and itunes u yeah and so it was just i was able to listen for 10 hours a day in the machine you know, if I was working yeah. eight hours in the in the commute to and from, and uh, so we both just ended up that that's what we did all, all day, and it was always about searching for like the best new information that we could find. Um, so we started sharing podcasts with each other, and um, eventually leading down the road, the rabbit hole of rabbit holes, uh, <laughs> and we were always talking about everything that we you know, that we were learning while we were working after work, we'd be like, Oh man, you know, I'm listening to this. And, and we'd have these great conversations and we were, uh, just into the mysteries of the, of the real world, you know, the, the, the nonfiction basically. And, uh, yeah, yeah Russ early on started saying, man, I'm, I'm listening to these, these various podcasts and they're starting to talk to each other about all these things they're interviewing people but then they have round tables and have all these discussions like the discussions we have after work and he was just saying man I want to be a part of that conversation and uh I don't remember what the final straw that broke the camel's back or whatever you call it <laughs> was but one day we we're coming home from work and he was saying this same thing to me again like god I want to do this man and I was like all right let's do it right now so we just get home and <laughs> jump in the studio and hit record. Um, yeah, I think it probably was a, I think it was a combination of some where did the road go? Because, you know, Soraya yeah. started doing these big roundtables and he was getting, because he would get on authors 
yeah, and Russ talking about their books, but he, but then he started inviting other podcasters who were also talking about this stuff, and 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 people who are writing for Mysterious Universe website. And I was, you know, I was listening to Mysterious Universe. I'm listening to Where Did the Road Go. I was listening to Grimerica, and you know, when these all these guys started talking to each other, and one day I hear this Where Did the Road Go roundtable where they're all discussing. I don't know if it was cryptids or ufos or paranormal stuff and i was just like god we got to i want to join these conversations you know because i'm in my machine listening to this and i'm shouting at them of course you know, that's <laughs> yeah. what everybody does so, yep <laughs> and then kyle was like all right let's just do it and that's what we did yeah so i was just like well i'll handle all the studio stuff if you can figure out how to uh make it you know figure out the rss feed uh, oh yeah, that's right. That it. was the that was your stipulation. Yeah. You were like you were like we'll record it as soon as you show me that you put in the effort to make an RSS feed. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. Yeah. When did you guys start your podcast? When was your first official podcast? Um, the only one who knows that is Laura. Uh, <laughs> I'm terrible at remembering dates. And, uh, you know, so there's this thing with the way that I do the feed, I basically use, uh, it's, uh, you know, one of our, um, one of our policies here at brothers of the serpent is, is as little work as possible. Right. <laughs> well, you guys are doing a lot outside of podcasting, right? Well, yeah, so. it's kind of a joke cause it's a lot of work. All of it's a lot of work, which is why we were, you know, we joke about as little work as possible, which still means you end up doing a lot of work, but right. what we mean is we don't want to stack more work on stuff. So uh, an easy way I found back when we started for, and this was before there was a Libsyn and before there were any of these big podcasting RSS generators, was that Google Blogger, right, uh, would generate, if you had a blog on Google, it would you could sign up to it as an RSS. Yeah, I mean, that was what RSS originally was. Right, for news. Right. It was just for text, for news feeds. So I found out that if I if I started a Google Blogger site, I could it would generate an RSS feed that would work in RSS readers as text and images and then I could f I could run that RSS feed through Google's Feedburner uh which is another free service Feedburner will would basically take that blogger RSS feed and pare it down to um like a podcasting RSS feed with audio enclosures uh, without me having to do a whole bunch of work or build the RSS manually, right? So then I could right. basically just use Blogger's interface, uh, which is basically real simple, where you just I can go in there, I can type up the show notes and description, I can put in some keywords, and then I can just embed the audio file. And then uh, FeedBurner would see that as the, uh, the Blogger RSS updated, and it would just burn it basically to a podcasting RSS. So we still use that system. Uh, okay. the problem is, is that with Google blocker, if you make any adjustments to an old post, it updates the, the post date. Oh, right. So, so <laughs> around episode 50 or 60, I don't remember where, but, uh, I started, I was, I was unsatisfied with, you know, Google stopped supporting feed burner. It still exists, but they stopped updating it and changing it. And, you know, so it's still there, but it's a legacy platform. Uh, so I was unsatisfied with the way FeedBurner, with the stats that FeedBurner gave me for monitoring what was happening with the podcast, how many downloads we were getting, how many views, you know, it, FeedBurner's stat system is strange, it, which is weird because, you know, a lot of people use Google Analytics and FeedBurner is a Google platform. Uh, but 
I was I was looking at the possibility of using some other services that were coming out. Blueberry uh, in this in this particular instance offered a free podcasting uh, stats service, but that required that you you know. And I'm going to a bunch of technical details here. Your interests your listeners are probably not interested in, but <laughs> it, I'm interested in it. That's okay. I'm a total nerd here. Yeah, you you can delete all this right. stuff if you want. Zero mistakes. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I, I had to go back and add some code to all the audio enclosures in Blogger. And that changed the date of every post I did that to, to the day that I did that work. So I don't remember when the podcast started anymore. Well, I can tell you <laughs> right. it was in 2016, at least. Oh, okay. It had to have been because I remember the job that we started. And I remember uh. where we were driving every day and we were carpooling and that's when we decided to do it so okay okay yeah. i don't know what month it was right but yeah. uh yeah i'm pretty sure that was that was the first episode recorded was in 2016 okay yeah there is a podcast birthday that i determined by looking through <laughs> other things and i told it to laura and she knows exactly what day it is but i never remember it's her job to remember that stuff <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> and laura's your wife right Kyle's my wife, wife yeah, yeah. That's oh okay all right. I think, Michelle, my wife has got a question. For yeah, you. guys, I do have a question. Since one of the classes that I teach in middle school is mythology, I got to ask you to the name Brothers of the Serpent. Um, what is the background of the symbol and is it tied to Norse mythology? It's uh, it's OK. So well, it's tied to many mythologies. What? OK. Yeah, go ahead. Go. All right. I, I feel like Kyle's about to skirt dirt me over here. Is that what's going to happen? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. I was actually just reading up on on serpent uh, symbolism. So I, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Take it away then. Go for I it. I just, because people have asked what the meaning of the name is and, and we had, it's, it's um, multifaceted. Um, a lot of it stems from um, like the, the idea of the, the legendary Sarmung Brotherhood, right? Which the, That's right, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the book Gods of Eden. Um, William Familiar with it? Never read it. William Bramley talks about the Brotherhood of the Serpent um, and all the corruption. So there's like this weird connection to that because we were... Th basically, the idea of the Sarmung Brotherhood, which is uh, loosely tied to the Brotherhood of the Serpent, which they were just... Uh, um, they preserved knowledge and tried to carry it forward and reseed it when it was when in a time of need. Um, so we had, I've talked to people about that when people ask about the symbol and the name. But to me, I think it the 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 Ouroboros represents um, cycles, right? Everything goes in cycles, and we're interested in. Uh, obviously astronomy or cycles of catastrophe and geology and also the hidden knowledge. And so the serpent being a symbol of knowledge and the, the Ouroboros being sort of like a, a cyclical catastrophic symbol or a symbol of knowledge together. That's what, that's kind of what the idea of the podcast was. We're going to seek this hidden knowledge and try to um, reveal it as much as we can, or where we find other people revealing it, we want to bring those people on or talk about those books. And so, and since we're brothers, you know, we are we're brothers of the serpent. So that's kind of yeah, 
Yeah, that's... It that's, wasn't a direct connection to North, Norse mythology, but it it is connected. That's right. right. There, yeah. there seems to be a shared mythology when it when it comes to the ideas of the serpent where uh the like christianity talks about the serpent being negative right the serpent in the garden of eden but the serpent also brings knowledge and that was one thing i always found weird was why do you give an apple to your teacher you know back in the day it was like why do you bring well, because it was the apple of knowledge from the garden of that's Eden. right the but fruit that's, of the tree that of symbolism exists right but the the meaning behind it um kind of got lost in translation maybe even literally well also um, the, but, the the serpent is a symbol of death right mm-hmm. um, it's the end of days yeah yes. in norse it's the end of days it's ragnarok, ragnarok. that's right yeah. that's right but it's you know it, in in many ways so is knowledge Right. Knowledge is the death of ignorance or the death of what of your paradigms. When you learn something, there is a form of like a death and rebirth. So there's a lot of connections across, you know, but but the serpent, the actual snake, the animal is, you know, long time seen as man's uh, nemesis. Right. Um, even in in the biblical text, like prey animal, yeah, he bites (laughs) your heel and you crush his head, right? That's the, there's this weird relationship with serpents and man. Um, so I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's made its way into all of these, uh, ancient, uh, cultures and traditions as, um, a symbol of knowledge, a symbol of death, a symbol of cycles, rebirth. Um, so I, I, I just love it personally. I, I love the symbolism of the serpent. So, yeah. And, yeah, it, and it, there's also like the shedding of the skin. Yes. Shed right. Skin you know, belt. which is like you going through your, your, your phases, I guess, uh, your phases of maturity or growth, you know, so you shed your old skin as you get older. That's right. And learn more things. So. Plus, there's the symbolism of myself being an earth science and astronomy teacher, you know, the Ouroboros, like you were saying, when I first saw the symbol, that's what immediately went to my head was the serpent eating its tail, the the never ending cycle. That's right. And I think in a lot of mythology that is portrayed, even just south of here, we have in Ohio, um, what's called the serpent mounts and if, if or the serpent mounds. And if you look at those mounds, the the head of the serpent, and it's pretty apparent that it is a serpent with its mouth wide open and what it looks like is an egg that's right. in front of the mouth. And that's about what I know of it, other than there was a bunch of people just there recently and on the summers and winter solstice, the sun rises right in front of that orb. That's right. In the serpent's mouth, my fa- you know, my favorite interpretation of that site is that the the serpent eating the egg is yes. is symbolic of a comet or something from the sky coming down and hitting the earth. Right. The yeah, the comet slamming into the earth, uh, causing a sort of a death and rebirth of the earth at the same time. And of course, that yep. that mound is positioned outside of a very ancient astrobleam a uh, a mm. crater structure i mean it's right on the rim of it yeah it's on the rim of a very old impact site 
Wow. So it, you yeah. know, it makes you that, wonder. That I didn't know. Yeah, it makes you wonder what these people who built this knew, you know. Right. Uh, one of the, and maybe you guys have heard about this interpretation as well, but if you look at the way that the snake is writhing back and forth and you go to opposite, basically parts of the body at the, at the highest points, that those points, if you stare off to the east, where the, you know, the head's facing the east to watch the rising sun, you will see that those points line up directly with the, the um, solstice, or no. The phases equinoxes. of the moon. Or so, yeah, there, yeah, that's what So those means. bins in the body mark yeah. the most northern and southern moon sets and rises across ah. the 18.6 year uh, cycle of the, what, the, what is it called, the... Um, yeah, the moon will yeah, move I can't remember what it's called, north and south. Yeah, yeah, the moon has a bit of a the orbit of the moon has a bit of a wobble, and yeah, it, it takes eighteen something years for it to go from one extreme to the other, and then it does a it does a right. major and minor yes uh, oscillation oscillation. So yep. it'll go it'll go far out and then far out on on the right and then on the left and then it'll come back in and go not as far out on the right and not as far out on the left and then it'll go back to the right to the to the most extreme position back and forth it does this over and over and those bins mark these these spots and that's interesting exactly. because you know there's 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 interest there's major and minor lunar standstills is yeah. what they're called yeah that's it. <sighs> yeah so i yep. you know the going back to the logo and the name uh we had long conversations about uh you know what we were going to name the podcast and we came up with a bunch of different but the, you know the the brotherhood of the serpent and the idea of this uh, this group of people who were whose job it was to study the esoterica to to maintain ancient knowledge and then reinject it into civilization uh to me was the main impetus of the name obviously because that's brotherhood of the serpent and um uh, that's you know it's there's no clue what they called themselves um right this is this is a term that's given to them and the serpent the serpent itself shows up in all kinds of interesting places you know that the caduceus is a you know this is like this is an egyptian symbol uh that signifies medical knowledge so is the ouroboros i mean that's yeah the, and you know the ouroboros that... is also associated with alchemy which yes. also stems mm -hmm. from egypt right you know uh chemist yep. alchemist you know chemistry comes from this idea and you know, Randall's talked about if you see the symbol of the Ouroboros in any of these cathedrals, these beautiful cathedrals that are in Europe, yes. if you see that, you know that somebody is that the symbol of the Ouroboros in those cathedrals is a, a key, a clue to anyone watching who knows what they're looking for, that alchemical knowledge is embedded in the structure of the cathedral itself. Um, and so, you know, then you're questioning, well, what is alchemy exactly? Because alchemy blends the... Um, it blends the fields of spirituality and physical sciences. Uh, you know, in some senses, you can look at the symbolism and the teachings of alchemy and see that th this is somebody is encoding uh, spiritual information or however you want to call it information on attaining higher self. You know, the whole idea of turning lead into gold is could be interpreted as a symbol of uh, taking a mind and ma and making it transcend you know, into something more valuable right. by injecting knowledge of spirituality or whatever. But it also is the, obviously the impetus for what we consider today of modern sciences and chemistry, uh, which is yep. completely studying physical, you know, physical effects. 
So there, there's all that. And then, you know, when you look into mythology, specifically going back to, for example, the ancient texts of the Bible, you know, you, you get these weird, like first you have the serpent in Eden, which is what you were talking about. So it gives it a negative right. connotation. But if you go later on, you can see other places where it's not necessarily negative or where it's sort of ambiguous, right? So like one that I always remember uh, is the story of, you know, when, you, when you're in Exodus and you've got the story of Moses going up against the Pharaoh. Oh, and throwing. Yeah. Throwing and there's this, there's down. this weird thing where the Pharaoh's like, come on, you know, he, he tells his, uh, his basically what his magicians, yeah, said. his magicians, basically what amounts to like his scientific advisors. Right. <laughs> you know, he's like, come on, you, you guys, you guys need to destroy this guy, uh, take him down intellectually. And there's this scene where they, all these magicians go up to Moses and they throw their staffs down and they turn into snakes. And then Moses throws down the staff he has called the staff of Aaron, which is his brother. He throws it down. It turns into a bigger snake and eats all of their snakes. And then after that, the magicians go to Pharaoh and they say, sorry, you know, we can't uh, we can't, we can't defeat this guy. His knowledge kicked our knowledge. Right. And so, it, you know, you look at that <laughs> that story and you're like, what's really happening here? Like, are we really looking at some, you know, where they're throwing down their staffs and it becomes snakes or is the serpent the symbol of knowledge? And this was it was a chest. It was basically a debate. Yeah. And they they go out there and they throw out a bunch of their knowledge. And Moses turns out to have better and stronger and higher knowledge than theirs and destroyed all their arguments or something like that. And what they ended up telling the Pharaoh basically was this person is a member of our own order and he stands above us in that order. So we can't help you. Yeah. And that that makes sense because Moses was raised by an Egyptian princess and he was put and as, as a member of the Royal family was put through all of those secret uh, schools that Egypt had. Right. So he just ran away for a while, comes back as an, as an older man probably, and they didn't recognize him. And then it turns out that he's actually a member of these guys, school and he stands above them in it. And so they, they had to tell the Pharaoh that they can't help him. In other words, they're, uh, they're, allegiance to the school was stronger than their allegiance to the pharaoh which to yeah. me is an indication that we're looking at a branch of the brotherhood of the serpent and you know all the symbols in there it, it sort of indicates this and then another biblical one i'm not gonna be able to quote this exactly but it, you know later in the new testament uh it's jesus right and he's giving a advice like be as wise as the serpent and something else as the dove. I can't remember what exactly the quote is, but that's another place where in the Bible the serpent is given not as a negative thing, but as a symbol of wisdom. Uh, so it's it, it, it the negative connotations from from Genesis are interesting because what is again it's 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 considered negative because of what happens in that story, but really innocent. Yeah, be as wise as the serpent and innocent as doves. Is what Jesus tells his followers, right? Right. Uh, so when, it, when you go back to the Genesis story, what you see is the serpent is attempting to inject knowledge into the human race. Uh, and we've discussed this quite a lot on our podcast on why was this a big problem? You know, what, what exactly is going on in this story uh, where something is saying, hey, humans, you're kind of dumb. Uh, here's a way for you to get smart. <laughs> Yeah, and then God and, has a big problem with this. Uh, you know, you're like, wait a minute, and the Tower of Babel is the same way. You know, you look at the Tower of Babel story, and you see again that humans are achieving something 
they're 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 striving to reach the heavens or whatever it exactly it is, and God comes down and is like, this is a big problem. And you know, the question is, is well, what what exactly is the problem here? What is the problem with humans attaining knowledge? And why is it attempted to be stopped? And you know, we've we've talked about the Tower of Babel a lot, and that story haunts us because you know when you when you speak to people who have christian views they view it as they view that story as like somehow man was being arrogant or something they were right. like man was trying to attain the same status as god right but uh when you read the story there's there's no real sin involved in this they're just what they say is let us build this tower so that we shall not be scattered across the face of the earth because they had just experienced the the great flood right they had just come right. out, you know, a few hundred years before they'd come out of a giant cataclysm and they're like, let's let's sort of do something that will keep us keep this from happening again. God comes down and goes, look at what they're doing. If they continue to do this, they're going to they're going that nothing shall be withheld from them. That's what he, that's what the translation says. And then he says, let us confuse their tongues and scatter them across the face of the earth. In other words, do exactly what the humans were hoping wouldn't happen. And that to me. And to us, you know, we look at that story, we're just like, what what really is happening in this story? What is yeah. what is really being told to us? What what understanding and knowledge is being carried down here? And that it seems to be that something does not want humans to attain certain knowledge and has been working to prevent it throughout history. You know, if you just if you take the stories not necessarily literally, but that they're telling you about true events and this isn't a deeper symbolism of something else. So the idea of the Brotherhood of the Serpent, again, going, going all the way back to the name and the symbol, <laughs> is that we, we're interested in the idea that knowledge, is, knowledge should be uh, studied, collected, talked about, and then re-injected into civilization by people who are interested in it. And that's, we, we, I, we admire the, I, the concept of this kind of brotherhood. Uh, of this kind of system, and so we sort of named our podcast op- after it, with the with a little side joke in there that we're brothers, basically. So we just changed it to Brothers of the Serpent. So that's right. it. There you go. <laughs> Long winded explanation of the name. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Well, now I don't have to ask you my next question, which was going to be, you know, for those of us or for those of that are in our audience that would like to uh, know a little bit about what you guys talk about. <laughs> we can say everything now. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're, yeah, so awesome. for also for your audience, we have terms that might appear randomly in our, in what we're saying, things like, like uh script or butt flaps. And uh, maybe you guys would have to explain those to people. <laughs> but if you hear those, you can go to our website to figure out what they mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, Johanna James has has really ad- adopted the uh, skirptard. Yes, uh, yeah, she term because she she's she's digging into the field as well now, and uh, <laughs> instantly running into people that will be skeptical at you know just to be skeptical, <laughs> right? Skeptical, <laughs> skeptical in a way that's not really skeptical, but which, which is basically just defending the standard model line. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's what we call a skirptard. Somebody who. And that's kind of uh, one of the things I talked to Ben about, too, is that, uh, you know, these institutions. And, and I do want to ask you about the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis and where you guys are with that as well, because that's something I'm very interested in. But, you know, it, it's it's the 
It's the gatekeeper mentality that has infiltrated everything from these institutions to the point where you have people that are skeptical and they don't know what they're skeptical about other than you're bringing up a different idea or having trying to have a conversation about something that they're not comfortable with. Therefore, you're crazy. You're nuts. That's not true. Get out of here. And, uh, you know, it, it was just uh, one of those things that that I brought up to Ben because, you know, Egyptology, I mean, good Lord, bring up any kind of different ideas about that. And you got Zahi Awas running and screaming at you and, you know, discrediting everything. So, yeah, this uh, it's hard to say what is in the minds of the people who don't like these uh, alternative ideas. I don't know. I have some suspicions about why they're so they, they object to it so vehemently, but. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it could run the gamut. I mean, some of them just, you know, may be skeptical because like for, for example, of the younger Dryas impact hypothesis, because there's no smoking gun crater, right? That's what a lot of them say. Uh, right. but then there's, there's been a myriad of arguments all along the way that have seemed to be, to me, ridiculous, uh, arguments that just don't make any sense when you uh, scrutinize the details. Uh, so I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, it's protecting the paradigm. Um, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of it may go back to once you get into the peopling of the Americas, um, how far back that goes, then you have to face the possibility that you may be challenging uh, the evolutionary uh development of man yeah um which really disrupts a lot of textbooks uh things that we've been teaching for many many years um so yeah it's there there are a lot of <laughs> structures built up and certain ideas if they if they were wiped out uh would require a complete retelling or rewriting of the entire story and I think that the the implications of the the younger Dryas impact hypothesis is what um, gets a lot of people upset uh, right yeah. off the bat. Yeah, and that you know the idea of a person who's skeptical just because they're really just defending. In other words, they're very critical of new ideas or different ideas, but they're completely uncritical of accepted ideas. That's a skirptard. Right. And I think yep. one of the best, <laughs> one of the best, and it was, it's kind of flippant, you know, uh, quotes that I remember about that is we were going through a, a geneticist website on hybridization. And uh, his comment, his, his characterization of this kind of person is somebody who says, that can't be right because I didn't already believe it. Right. And that, to <laughs> me, that just, I'm just like, yes, there you go. that's, that's what's happening. Right. You know, there, there's this impetus to be like, no, what I, what you're saying means that everything I thought was wrong. And that means that it can't be right. Uh, so there's that. And then, yeah, with the younger Dryas, like Kyle said, there's the problem of, of the origins of humanity itself embedded in this, in this issue. And there's also a problem of, uniformitarian ideas about earth itself 
uh, and how long do geological processes take? And something this cataclysmic, this recent, um, if accepted, would require an enormous overturning of a lot of ideas about the structures of uh, geological features all over the planet. Right. So this is a big problem. Like one of the things that is, you yeah. know, you know how long it took them to accept the the KT impact, the Cretaceous I tertiary. Mean, just recently, oh, yeah. there was a, um, a paper that came out, I guess, in, within the last year. And and, you know, the news articles about this paper were like the the uh, the headlines were basically finally put to rest. Right. Like. It's the debate is finally over. Yeah, yeah, they found the crater. Right. They finally agree that yes, this is the crater. Yeah. I mean, so it's even <laughs> though I mean, I didn't realize it was still going on. And I'm sure even in some areas there's some holdouts. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, which is okay. Yeah. Uh but but yeah, it's that that was very recent. Yeah, and so that's that's one that you know it, it's it. This is an easier story to accept because it's supposedly so ancient. You know, uh, sixty-five right. to seventy million years ago. You know, the 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 KT boundary or KP as they call it now, the Cretaceous Paleogene uh, boundary. And these boundary events, you know, if if you look at a geological chart, a lot of these boundary events are indicative of something catastrophic taking place. Uh, yep. This is the only one. This is one of the few where there is a lot of accepted now accepted science that says that the the, the catastrophe that took place was uh, extraterrestrial in the sense that it didn't or the processes didn't originate on planet Earth. Uh, you know, the energy input came from uh, something impacting the planet very hard, something very large impacting the planet and causing a massive restructuring of everything, including the die off of everything. You know, all the all the large animal types. Um, so something like that taking place within, uh, within Homo sapiens lifetime, uh, existence on this planet is a lot harder for people to accept because it has huge implications for human origins and what, ha what has happened with us on this planet. And it sort of opens the door for others to be discovered also more recent, right? That's right. You know, not, not, yeah. Like even just a few thousand years earlier or maybe 50,000 years earlier. Right. Um, like George Howard's tusk, you know, yeah. is, is a big problem for, you know, it's it's kind of got tossed aside because it's it's strange. But that tusk, he they when he found, when they got it, they thought it was this was a part of the die off of the mammoths for the younger Dryas period. But it turned out to be too old for that. It was dated to be between 30 and 40,000 years old. I don't remember the exact numbers, but oh. it also has uh, extraterrestrial materials embedded in the tusk, which is why he calls it the cosmic tusk. Ah, uh, okay. So, you know that 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 makes you wonder, like, well, where did that? You know, how does it how does it have embedded materials that imply cosmic material? In other words, you know, the the stuff that we associate with meteor impacts. Uh, you know, platinum group metals and magnetic spherules embedded in the tusk itself as though it was, it was, uh, these are little vapor bullets, basically. <laughs> the mammoth was, yeah. you know, was injected with material from a cosmic impact at 30,000 years ago. And so that, th so if you have that plus the Younger Dryas evidence from 12 to 14,000 years ago, now you have impacts that are taking place on a much more regular basis than 
65 to 70 million years ago to now. And then there's Burkle Crater, which is, you know, this is very much not accepted, but there's there's evidence coming out now that there's, <clears throat> and not just now, but people have been looking at this for a while. It's hard to study because it's two miles, it's two miles below the surface of the ocean in the Indian Ocean. But there's evidence right. that there's a really young crater, a very large young crater out there that may have impacted between eight and 7,000 years ago. Or I'm sorry, eight and six between, you know, between 8,000 and 6,000 years ago, something hit the Indian Ocean. And there's other uh, proxy evidence all around the Indian Ocean, which in the in the form of what look like gigantic tidal deposits, tidal wave deposits on the coastlines around that ocean. Uh, and that's, you know, if that happened that recently, then then it's possible that bombardments take place a lot more often than the standard model and uniformitarian uh, geology has accepted. Yeah, and then you get into uh, another problem for for people that want to, you know, discount all this information, which is these ancient texts that talk about, you know, the, the destruction of the world that they... Yeah, I was just going to bring that up, <laughs> all the flood myths that yeah. exist out there. Yeah, because that that requires, you know, it's like Velikovsky uh went went through all these ancient texts and uh talked about, you know, showed showed the correlations to actual geological evidence for for um cataclysms. And it it it's going to add credence to these these ancient texts, right? Which are which are the basis for many religions and, you know, the the nature of the development of science and scientific study uh, has sort of tried to separate itself from that way of looking at the world, um, which is understandable, but it would kind of indicate that, well, maybe we need to actually go back through these ancient texts and, and look at them again. Uh, and maybe these people are telling the truth, right? Which that, that can cause problems with paradigms. Uh, or there was a problem with translation. Um, and, yeah, and I want to get into sure. that when we start digging into UFOs um, here in a little bit, especially with what I was just listening to off of episode 200 that you guys put out. Um, but it really, you know, with, with the die off of the dinosaurs and that catastrophe, and, and now they've finally, you know, quote unquote, settled the score when it comes to the crater that's off the coast of Mexico, I believe. Is that where they found it off the peninsula there? Yeah, it's it's basically uh, in the Gulf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why, you know, and, and for those of you that don't aren't familiar with the younger driest impact theory, it basically says about 10,600, 11,000 years ago, a comet that was breaking up impacted the earth and, and smaller pieces exploded in the air, like Tunguska in Russia. And, but you did have some impacts into the Laurentide ice, uh, ice sheet which is you know most of north america at that time and then greenland as well and so this caused this massive uh die off uh, and a cooling off of the planet massive fires um 180 megafauna just disappear and you know when i was in college like i had told ben on the previous episode you know, when I questioned my professor, because a lot of it didn't make sense to me, is their answers always were it was either the chilling, the ill, they got sick, or they were killed off by humans. 
And, and then they would talk about, you know, the short faced bear and saber tooth tigers and these mammoths being huge and humans running around in loincloths and addles And, you know, there was just a few thousand of them here, a few thousand of them here in North America, and they're killing off all these huge megafauna. I mean, just re- that would make these humans into snacks and it, it would be, you know, a joke for them to go after some of these, these animals. And, uh, you know, it never really made sense to me, but then when we talk about dinosaurs millions of years ago, it's like, eh, you know, 70 million years ago. Sure. We, we, we can look into that and, and, you know, argue about it a little bit, but yeah, that makes sense. But the ending of the last ice age, we can't, it's like you, you can't apply that same kind of a, a logic to something that happened closer. And I think it has to do with a couple things. One, it, it makes us very uncomfortable to think about space isn't all that empty, especially in our solar system. And, and we've got these impacts. I mean, people look at the moon and don't realize that those craters you're seeing were caused by things trying to get to the earth. They just happened to hit the moon first. I mean, thankfully, and, and it's like this red pill, blue pill kind of a thing. Eh, don't disturb me. Don't make me uncomfortable. I just want to be safe and back in the matrix where everything's nice and comfy and I can have my steak. And, you know, I don't want to think about those things. And, I, you know, and we've built up this whole world and in, in these societies based on, you know, keeping our head in the sand. When we know that the earth is a dynamic place, we know there's things going on in the solar system, in the universe. It could be catastrophic, you know, and maybe it's like a a form of like accepted helplessness. Like maybe if we just don't talk about people won't know just how, how crazy things are and how bad they could get really quickly. And maybe these people in these ancient texts, we're actually trying to warn us in the future about these things happening, but let's just say it was crazy myth and let's move on. Yeah. And you know, the, the warning thing you just brought up there is another interesting thing in these ancient texts where somebody's always warned before the catastrophe takes place. Yeah. God sends his angels to talk to the people and, you know, even, uh, Noah building the ark, you know, somebody told him something. I mean, yeah. Are you looking to the, you know, there's plenty of, for example, uh, Native American legends. Yes. Where they talk about mm-hmm. the eagle comes down to the seer, right? So we're talking about, a, well, I don't know what we're talking about. The seer would be the shaman or the wise person. And the eagle comes down and tries to tell the guy, you know, like, hey, um, your people live in this valley and there's going to be this gigantic wall of water rolling down here pretty soon and you need to get everybody out of here. And in a lot of cases, the, the seer listens to the eagle or, you know, whoever the whatever the symbol is, the eagle or the um, some other animal spirit or something. But the one I remember, the one I remember the most is where, you know, because it's it sort of stands out is where the seer doesn't pay attention. The seer is like, whatever, I'm not listening to you. You know, you're you're an eagle that doesn't you're, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And the eagle's like, well, you're a seer that doesn't see. And then, of course, in the story, the wall of water comes down the valley and wipes out the village. Uh, yep. And so there's plenty of flood stories or destruction stories. Uh, some of them from various places, people are told to, instead of building a boat or uh, climbing a mountain, they're told to go underground. 
and that the, the destruction is not going to be water, but fire and ice. You know, and it's the question is, is like, are we looking at the same event or are these many events? Right. Uh, but you can imagine, you know, because in some places, like, for example, North America, if these things hit the um, the ice sheets, that you're going to have water problems if you're farther south of the ice sheets because you're going to have a big meltdown. Uh, but in other places, it might have been fire. And at first, there's fire in the sky, and then you end up with a, with a thousand years of winter because you go back into the Younger Dryas, you know. So that it, it's interesting to wonder, uh, are these... Are these all are are these texts talking about the same events or are they separate? In which case, um, many of these events take place. That that it's happening a lot of times rather than one big time. So, but there's yeah, there's so many myths of destruction, and the Younger Dryas is one of the most. It is the most violent uh, extinction event in the past two to five million years. So, uh, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, the idea of megafauna dying off, that it was human hunters. Well, they they the megafauna existed in other places, too. They weren't just in in the Americas and they all died in Europe as well uh, over in the old world, where, according to the standard model, humans had been around for a long time. So the idea of, you know, correlating the die off of the megafauna with the arrival of humans, because they're like, look, the Clovis people show up and then the megafauna all die. So there's right. a clear correlation to the die-off. Well, the, there were people, there were humans for hundreds of thousands of years elsewhere, not in the New World, with megafauna, and the megafauna and the humans didn't kill each other off. So you, I don't think you can make that correlation, but that is one that they try to make, that it, it that the die-off of the megafauna happens after humans arrive in North America. Yeah, but at the same time that there's a bottleneck in the human population. That's right. So it's just, yeah. you know, it just... This is what I'm saying. Yeah, they can we'll chase, just call it a draw. Uh, trace that <laughs> genetically that that there was a that there was a uh, bottleneck in human genetics. Yeah, that's right. That's that's. I was just joking. We'll call it a draw, right? They, the humans and the megafauna were <laughs> they fought each other to extinction, just about. But the humans, there was a few of them left. But yeah, I, yeah, I don't know of many uh, um, hunter gatherer cultures out there especially the hunter ones that did not have great reverence for their food and treat it you know with respect and the fact that if we overhunt these things we're going to die you know well, i think so, they use the the american bison as an example right we, yeah. we hunted them to near extinction right yeah uh, i i don't I think that it has happened. I'm sure that in some cases uh, it's happened. Uh, at least um, they've become endangered through through right. uh, human hunting. And uh, yeah, it's just when you look at that period and you see all of the different animals that went extinct all around the same time and the um, all of the crazy uh, stuff that was going on in the climate and all of the flooding and everything that's left in the geological record. It's, it's, it's nuts to me to think that you've got a single problem of human overhunting, right? This is, it would be one right. thing to say, well, uh, there was a whole lot of them killed from the, from the cataclysm. And then the few survivors that were left may have been, the only food sources for the few survivors of the human population. And maybe they were helped along on their path to extinction by 
the survivors, right? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, thinking. yeah, so everything plays a role. I don't, I just, it's like to pin it on one thing and say this is the entire cause is kind of uh, oversimplified. Yeah. Well, since since we've dug into the, the younger driest impact hypothesis, I now need to go and dig into Atlantis, guys. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I want to know what, you guys what what your ideas are about atlantis and the correlation between the story of atlantis and the time frame that they're pretty much saying that was the end of the uh ice age the younger uh driest time frame so where do you guys fall in on the the myth the story of atlantis um well I'll, I'll take a shot at this. I'll just say um, I used to think of Atlantis in more general terms um, as like this is the the general name given to some ancient lost civilization, right? Okay. And and I do think that there is. Um, I would just say personally, I don't. I, I believe in the the possibility that there is an ancient lost civilization that achieved, you know, a level of uh, higher technology. I'm not putting a, I'm not imagining that they're walking around with cell phones and all the same type of technology as us, but at least um, higher than what we have seen. Um, I was just going to ask you, cause I asked Ben the same question. Can you also define if you, if that's where you're at in your understanding and your belief about Atlantis, can you let people know how would you define a high tech ancient civilization where, because when, like I told Ben, when anybody says anything like that, especially about uh, Egypt, instantly aliens, flying saucers, they have cars, you know, they, they, they picture our current technology back with these people, like you said, cell phones and things. Right. So what are you guys envisioning what that high tech society or civilization looked like back then? I would say at the very least a maritime civilization that, that uh, achieved uh, deep sea travel so that they were able to um, travel to different continents. That would be at the very least. Uh, and then of course the megalithic architecture, which we see in uh, Gubekli Tepe, right? Yes. which is yep. dated to be buried at around 12,000 years ago. Um, so yeah, they, they had to have been able to move very heavy loads. They had, they had uh, technology for cutting very hard stone. But for me, this has, been a, this has been a long sort of evolution of thought on the idea of what this, what this could be. And, you know, uh, yes, I went through phases of imagining them flying around in, in cr crazy ships with some type of technology that we can't even understand. Yeah, I think everybody has at some point. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, there, it's in the ancient texts, like the, you know, the Viabanas, these vehicles described as like, giant floating castles or whatever <laughs> like i don't know what this right. is but <laughs> yep so yeah i don't i don't know but i, I i'd say nowadays i'm a little more conservative about it uh that that it would be enough to me uh having looked into ben's work christopher dunn's work 
on the on the uh, machining uh, of these stones, these artifacts in ancient Egypt that they had to have uh, pretty advanced tools for machining stone to get flat surfaces, to get right angles, to uh, <laughs> produce complex curves exactly over and over on multiple different artifacts. Um, so that suggests that they had the wheel. Um, you, you know what I mean? They had guided tools. because yeah, they weren't supposed to have the wheel. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at least they had to have the wheel in order to have this type of these guided tools or, or to be able to spin, you know, like the potter's wheel or, you know, when they're, or a lathe, right. When they're cutting these, these stone jars and vases. Uh, so that, that requires the wheel and some form of, uh, yeah. And they're, they're cut out of granite. Yes. I mean, you, you know, copper chisels, not going to do that and make them perfect. I mean, I, I honestly think that a lot of this stuff is just hidden in plain sight that, we're so used to the precision and everything we see in our, you know, our everyday lives that when we look at ancient structures, like in Egypt with the, the symmetrical faces that are, are perfect. Right. I mean, Christopher Dunn points that out. And, and not only that, know, but they're, they're reproduced multiple times, yes. right? It's, it's, yes. it'd be one thing to do it once. You could say that they might get lucky, right. And do it once. <laughs> right. the fact that they can have it last thousands of years by yeah. the way <laughs> well that's just the nature of granite right right uh, but yeah they didn't use limestone to do that because limestone you know weathers and erodes but granite takes a lot longer yeah so so going back to the idea of atlantis being sort of a catch-all term for a an ancient lost civilization that had technology that would give them the ability to spread their knowledge throughout the earth, which is why we might end up with the same types of megalithic structures on different continents that were built at different times throughout history. You know, the pyramid structure, um, a lot of the same um, mythology, a lot of the same stories being told. So, you know, in the, in the nature of, of Graham Hancock's work that there was this, this civilization sort of seeded, a lot of the ideas that have been carried down through the ages amongst different populations that were geographically isolated from each other um, because of the technology that, that followed later, right? The loss of technology ended up isolating cultures, but they had similar stories. They had similar structures. They had similar um, uh, traditions. It looks like there was at least some type of global, uh, knowledge right that was spread from a, a previous civilization so that was the way i used to think about it until uh we started the cosmographia uh podcast with randall and he went through his uh atlantis presentation over i think six episodes where he dug yeah. into the works of plato the the writings and the actual like what is what does he say specifically about atlantis because that's the only source for this idea and that's i learned a lot through that that series of episodes and and uh, i think randall laid out a pretty solid case <laughs> so um i don't know if you've seen that but uh you know he kind of lands he he's he's sticking with the azores idea because right. he's following yep. he's following the text as exactly as he can and then sort of backing it up with a lot of 
modern scientific evidence about geology and what might have what might have been uh, the world in which they lived in prior to uh, the the end of the last ice age out there in the Atlantic Ocean and could could these processes these geological processes that we know happen such as you know isostatic depression isostatic rebound which is the um, the crust of the earth moving uh, vertically up or down depending on the pressures put on it by oceans or ice sheets yeah we experience that here in Michigan because we are considered the you know the Michigan basin and the reason for that was you know three miles of ice that you know, depress the crust down into the asthenosphere and into the mantle, which we still get, you know, little 2.0 earthquakes every so often where the ground is trying to become equal again after losing all that ice, you know, 11,000 years ago. So that wouldn't just happen, you know, just in this area, that would happen wherever you had, you know, the crust being moved and deformed by the weight of the ice. And also, uh, the flood, the whole flood idea, and Ben and I talked about this, is that, you know, you had 10 million square miles of coastline that were flooded when all that ice went through or, you know, melted and f- flowed into the uh, oceans and, and brought the sea level up, you know, 400 feet. Right. And so if you were an island nation at that time, you know, chances are, or living on the coast anywhere on on the planet, chances are your your civilization would be wiped out and buried underneath all this water. That's right. Yeah. And there's multiple points about that. I mean, how fast do these processes of like isostatic change happen, right? The, the, the standard model of uniformitarian geology says that they take place very, very slowly over long periods of time. But um, looking more into the catastrophism model of geology, uh, is it possible that these things can take place fairly quickly com- in comparison to the accepted model? And so that would be something to look for evidence for in terms of, uh, you know, th- there's a three-plate junction right at the Azores, uh, three tectonic plates sort of. There's these giant faults um, that that this is like a... a a hinge point, right? So it may, maybe isostatic pressures can, can cause, you know, or can move much faster in this area than normal or maybe much greater distances. So you could mm-hmm. have had a giant landmass sticking up out of the Atlantic ocean when all of the oceans were lower and the ice sheets were p- applying pressure in different areas than they are now. I don't know, but it's a, I, yeah. I, it's a, it's a compelling case that Randall lays out. I really like it. And, and of course that he's sticking to the text and trying to let's, let's go look at the evidence on the ground based on wh- exactly what is he's saying in the text. I just think is a, a good way to approach it. Um, yeah. And, and it's, you know, taking, taking that as like, is, is Atlantis a real actual place uh, versus what do we think about lost possibly pre ice age or pre flood you know antediluvian civilizations is would be the the term uh right. pre flood civilizations and where they advanced uh like Kyle said the advancement you know we just you just have to look at evidence around the world and say well what 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 does it seem like they were doing and 
maritime at the very least. In other words, they were able to circumnavigate the globe. They they mapped a lot of things out. There's a lot of, you know, Graham Hancock goes into a lot of interesting work on ancient maps and where where lots of ancient maps seem to have sourced much older maps that no longer exist today that had correct longitudes for a lot of places. Uh, and longitude is a problem, you know, that wasn't really solved until the 1800s or late 1800s with, with the, with, you know, somebody had to build a watch that worked on a ship. The watch. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, because for that, the really accurate clocks were water clocks or require, or were relied on, you know, uh, pendulums and those don't work on ships that are rolling back and forth in the ocean. That's right. So somebody had to build a, a clockwork device that had a, a specific accuracy, you know, within a, within a minimum amount. I think it was like it doesn't it, it had to not lose a second within a month or something like that. Right. It had to remain accurate to with it within a couple of seconds over a, over a period of a month to be able to get longitude uh, calculations correct. And, you know, there was a whole uh people were aware of this problem and you know the problem of making maps and it's interesting to look at uh maps that were made by people who were exploring previous to somebody making this watch and how wrong they can be because it was hard yeah. to calculate longitude and yet we see these m much more ancient maps by certain map makers uh that say in their work that they were sourcing much older maps from libraries or various repositories of, of knowledge uh, that have correct longitudes in, in a lot of places, very exact longitudes. So it implies that somebody uh, a long, long time ago was mapping the world and doing it very accurately, right? So that's one piece of evidence. Uh, another piece of evidence is lots of these, of these what we think of as uh, uh, precursor civilizations, pe these civilizations that start up, you know, 6,000, 7,000 years ago, uh, they have their own legends that seem to indicate that their civilization was a legacy civilization that uh, that started out with a bunch of knowledge from people that came before. Uh, Egypt does this, and you know Egypt's Egypt's mythological history is a lot longer than the the accepted uh, archaeological yeah. history. A lot longer. The Zet Tepi, I think, the first time is what they call. Yeah, it. Yeah, if you look at kings lists. From Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, you know Babylonia, uh, Sumer. They have kings lists that uh, are definitely delineated by a catastrophic period. And previous to that, they have uh, many, many thousands of years more history that is not accepted in the archaeological record. But you know, it's it makes sense if there was a big destruction that most of that evidence would be lost, except for textually and 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 in in the form of like. Uh, stories that were carried on by survivors, you know, and so you know, people are asking like, well, where where is the evidence for hot, for advanced civilization previous to ten thousand years ago? And it's and Randall makes the point like, well, you have to first you have to understand how drastically the world changed, right? And the unlikelihood of us finding evidence because of how drastically the world changed, and also because of where people build centers of civilization, they build them at the edges of water. Yep, and which now would be the continental crust of all the continents, right? So or if you or along something, or alongside rivers that were flooded, yeah, enormously flooded by the outflowing of glacial meltwater. You know, so not just the sea levels rising for coastal cities, but you know, riverside cities. Uh, they would, they, uh, you know, we have. If you look at cities now, they're all most of them are on rivers or on the coast. 
yep. and they're in place and they're in glacial fl- meltwater flood places. You know, like we spend a lot of time looking at uh, at the evidence for Younger Dryas meltwater floods with Randall, and you see cities in these flat plains down in these flood channels all over the place, and you're just like, God, that was it would be gone if this happened again. Uh, now, obviously, now we don't have a big ice sheet there, so they're not in danger of that so much. But when you did have all that ice up there, and then if that ice melts catastrophically, and there's plenty of evidence that it did, and enormous amounts of water flowed through there, if there were any civilizations there, they're, they're, they're not just buried. They're obliterated. Uh, and, you know, wh- what kind of technology did they have is another... It's in the precision. I think of this in terms of what did we have to do to get these levels of precision for modern civilization? Now that may not be a direct correlation because I think technology can develop in different ways, but the, at the very least you, it seems to indicate machine guided tools and a machine industry implies a lot of things. And uh, just to go back to what you were saying about longitude, you know, machining for clocks would be, yeah. Right. That's that could be a mode of development, right? You, you you're yes. working on these clocks, you gotta get these gears. Now you need to reproduce clocks so that everybody can travel and exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this That's is the right. impetus for the development of machine tools. Right. And then and then the the precision levels that we see on certain artifacts, and you know, granted these artifacts are made out of stone. And that's because metal doesn't last very long unless it's gold and gold doesn't hold its shape. You can't, you know, you're not going to make a machine tool out of gold because gold is malleable. Right. Right. Uh, it's very soft. Yeah. It's very soft. You can, you can dent it easily with, you know, with, with a rock basically. But, but, uh, if you're making metal tools, the metal doesn't last very long. And we see evidence of this all over the place in, in megalithic structures, uh, in, in the form of the keystone cuts. Uh, it's clear that these that these cuts in these megalithic stones used to hold some kind of anchor that connected one block to another, uh, and it's 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 pretty accepted that that anchor was probably of some kind of metal. Some people think it was copper or something like that. You know, copper is pretty weak as well, but yes. in other cases, it's it it seems to be that they that somebody was pouring the the object into the cut on site. You know, and that that's an interesting idea because then you're looking at portable smelting. Uh, <laughs> and then the question right. of what kind of metal is it? Well, how long does steel last if left, you know, it doesn't last very long. You can make many different kinds of steel and most of them will, will corrode away within a very short amount of time. They're not going to last 10,000 years for sure. Uh, even in protected areas, they just turn into a pile of rust and then, the, and then that gets, you know, that just disappears. Basically, if there were large metallic tools more than 10,000 years ago, the only way you could detect them is forensically. And you'd have to know what you were looking for. Right. Uh, you know, there's this idea of, uh, we talked about this early on in our podcast about, you know, that if you have a cell phone and say like a backhoe, like a large piece of machinery and, uh, and an arrowhead, okay, a stone arrowhead, and you left them all on a hilltop and then the entire human civilization just gets wiped out and those tools are all sitting there on that hilltop. In a thousand years, the cell phone is gone and the backhoe is a pile of rust. In 10,000 years, you can't even tell the backhoe or the cell phone wherever they are, but that arrowhead is still fine. And it's That's still right. sitting there. It might have changed color. Yeah, it might have changed color a little bit. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, so the, the question of like, well, where are the tools is you just have to understand the, the longevity of materials. And so what we have are stone artifacts. And a lot of these stone artifacts point to not only precision technology, but also other ones that we don't really understand. Like the Peruvian ruins, you know, of like Sacsayhuaman, where it isn't about precision necessarily, but about, well, it might be a kind of precision, but it's more about how did they... How did they do this with these walls? How, right. How do you make these? What what it looks like the stones were sort of soft and you know sort of molded into shapes that are that are very complicated and then fitted very precisely with each other and they're still there and they're like earthquake proof and all this weird stuff and you and they're also enormous and you just it's just it's that's not even about precision it's just like what are they even trying to do here. Right, right. What's the purpose? Yeah. Okay. So you got what's the function? Because you got form, you have precision. What's the function? Right. <laughs> yeah. So I know you guys talked to Ben about you know the serapium and the boxes in there and the interior yeah, of those yeah. boxes. That's a kind of precision that we can look at and say, in a way, we can understand this. Somebody was achieving incredibly flat surfaces that are all parallel with each other to tiny, tiny amounts. Like they're they're so right. precise. In every possible way, including the corners and the angles and the par- and the, how they're parallel with each other and the, how the... And putting them underground yeah, somehow. Yeah, but the, the precision is something that it is so fine that it, it, it extends to the, uh, to the limits of our ability to measure precision. In other words, yeah. the people who were building these boxes were using tools that can achieve, that were able to achieve similar levels of precision as we are able to achieve today. Now, the question is, is why were they doing that? But we can look at it and say, okay, here's a box that's very precise. That's interesting. But when you look at like the Peruvian stuff, you're like, this is a different kind of mindset in terms of precision. It's precise in the in the fact that they make these weird shaped box blocks all fit onto each other very precisely. Right. But it isn't the same kind of precision as like a box that you can imagine putting a machine in because it's got all these flat surfaces and 90 degree angles. It's a different kind of precision that's even harder to achieve yeah and uh yeah, yeah that the idea of it being earthquake proof makes you wonder you know it looks like somebody was it's, building for the ages it's the precision of matching complex curves That's reproducing right. complex yeah. curves that almost are random right you don't see yes. you don't see a repeating pattern of complex curves that you could say okay well we'll make curve b so many times on, on yeah. you know, you see what I'm saying? It, it's it's so random yeah. and not repeating that it's like they have the ability to have a random complex curve on one stone and then match it op- with the opposite on another stone face and then never do that again, but do it in a completely different way. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of times like that is a yeah, right. That is an achievement. Yeah. And it's it's it, it, and they don't use a, a mortar, do they? They just interlock them. Right. It's it's yeah. It's heterogeneous, uh, dry laid cyclopean masonry. <laughs> <laughs> now you sound like Randall. Right. <laughs> don't don't ask me about the Carolina Bays and the Aeolian uh, artesian <laughs> solution. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Lacustrian. Yeah, you got, don't yeah. don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, and and where did the term cyclopean come from? You know, the yeah, idea, cyclops? That, yeah, the Greeks were like, the Cyclops build these, right? They right. they saw the same ruins. It was a laser. And it, <laughs> <laughs> right. It was a machine with a, with a single eye, a laser. Right. 
you know, the, the Cyclops being a giant, and that's why it's Cyclopean. In other words, it was built by giants in some unknown fashion using magical, mythical processes. And I mean, you could see, you know, that type of uh, myth um, or that type of story being carried on. Um, if you took, say, sure. a modern day, um, you know, a primitive society that's isolated on some island. Or, and so, it, like, let's say we went to some island where there's, you know, there's still a sort of Stone Age uh, tribes living on the island. And we started doing some massive construction project. Yep. And they were wandering around hunting in their loincloths or what we call butt flaps. And, uh, <laughs> and they just see these gigantic machines building some huge structure that it's, it, you know, yeah, this wall was built by giants, they would say to each other. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How would they describe a, a backhoe? Yeah, exactly. Right? Or a, a crane. A one, a, right. A, a one armed monster that could lift huge amounts of dirt you know, out of the ground. I mean, how would that be? Yeah. It kind of looks like know, a turned into a myth. It kind of looks like a, like a chimera, you know, it's a scorpion yeah. tail with a, uh, with claws at the front, you yeah. know? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. If you, it, that's the thing you start looking at all these machines, like as you're driving down the highway and you start looking at machines and try to remove from your mind, the knowledge that they're not alive. Right. Right. As I mean, what would you think? Right. Would you know if you were, if you had, if you were in the stone age and you had never even had the idea of machinery and you came upon a dozer going through the woods, there would be no indication <laughs> to you that that thing wasn't a creature. That's right. With intelligence. Cause it seems to operate with intelligence or, you know, it's, it has a purpose. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's no reason why yeah. these, why if, if somebody experienced something like that, that they wouldn't have tales of, you know, giants building things or yeah. We do use giants to build stuff. They're just machines. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. And that kind of gets you to like the uh, the whole simile and, and metaphors thing. You know, how would you, you know, if, if there was a new piece of machinery that you're driving down the road you had never seen before and it was some type of a bulldozer type thing, what, you know, how would you explain that to somebody that you just pull off to the side of the road and call on your phone and go, I just saw this thing. It was like a, a giant monster with these teeth drilling through the ground. I mean, we would still use those same kind of terms to try to describe, you know, even machines today. If, as long as we don't know what they are, we're going to, you know, research our brain and try to find those things that are most like what we're looking at yeah or imagine that um that you survive a catastrophic destruction of civilization and you're trying to explain to your kids what people used to do you know maybe you're exactly. maybe you're looking at some ruins and you're like explaining well they had we had these things called bulldozers and cars and uh airplanes and we used to fly through the air but the child doesn't have any doesn't know it hasn't seen any of these things so when that kid grows up and has kids and tries to tell their, their kids what their parents said, it's going to get further turned into animals and lifelike things because they don't even, they never saw it. And eventually you, you have, you know, these chimeric monsters, uh, these giants of the past. Yeah. Or, or houses flying through the air and right. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Giant eagles and carrying people that, that could see all yeah. over the planet. And, yep. you know, there's this idea, like you were asking, you know, did they have cell phones? Well, I mean, you know, you look into the concept of oracle stones, and there's plenty of legends about these 
you know, small, like, for example, like an obsidian slab that Mm -hmm. when you asked it questions would give you answers. You know, and if you're holding a cell phone in your hand right now, look down at it if the screen is off. It looks like a black, glassy slab, right? (laughs) Or or turn off your monitor right now. Yeah, exactly. You know, know, what are you looking at? How how much of this, you know, we call this quant stuff. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's a good segue um, because, you know, we're we're talking about uh, if you're a maritime explorer and you're considering that high technology back in the the ancient times, that would also kind of denote that you need to know something about the stars. Right? Would you guys not agree that you 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 have to have an understanding of the greater cosmos and how things are moving in the sky? Yep, for sure. Yeah, and yeah. this and and as we were talking about before that that uh some people seem to be forewarned about catastrophe you know a lot of times it it i mean it would make sense to interpret that in a way that some people were astronomers exactly and so you know what like when they say god forewarned them you know well we have all of these similar ways of of you know we say well we're looking up into the heavens Right. And and in a lot of cases, the gods were the planetary bodies that were moving around. And so you can see how an astronomer would come and say, dude, there's like a giant uh, something's coming at us and, and uh, it's probably going to impact like we've, we're, we've worked out the calculations. Yeah. And so in a way, they were told they were looking into the heavens and they were told by God that there was going to be a destruction of the world. Yeah, right. And some of the stories of the eagle coming and telling the seer may be uh, an advanced civilization trying to tell other people around the world. There you go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and, and uh, there are certain writings as well when they talk about comets being, you know, the the hair of uh, I mean, I can't remember now the exact, but there there's different mythologies out there that talk about uh you know, the, the fire in the sky and, and these people were probably looking at these comets and seeing them break apart. Yeah. The beard, or, bearded uh, stars or broom, yeah. broom stars. They had all kinds of terms for the, them. Yeah. 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 So the people that would be, you know, watching the sky, I mean, they would have to try to describe what's going on and tell that story. And maybe they are the ones that observed things impacting the moon at some point and kind of put two and two together. Hey, you got things smashing into the moon. And now I see this glowing thing that looks like it has a, a, a stream of hair coming from it. It might be trying to tell us something and they try to warn people. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's you know, a, a, so. the, the face of the moon that has all those craters is facing the earth all the time. <laughs> That's yeah. So whatever hit it had to pass Earth first. Right. Like it was a shotgun blast, and uh, the parts yep. that missed the Earth that were pulled around slammed into the moon. That's the stuff that missed us. Right, right. And we don't ever see the the backside of the moon, so you know we don't we don't have a comparison to. I mean, we know what's back there now, but we don't ever see it. Right from Earth. Yeah, and the backside of the moon is wholly different from the side that faces us it is wild to look at you know uh like for example drawings of this where you see that the front face of the moon is basically a big basin the backside is very mountainous it has craters too but it's incredibly mountainous and rugged 
Yeah. Uh, whereas the front the front side is is actually much lower than the back side, and it's it's the side with all the destruction. <laughs> it's just a very strange, right. it's a very strange thing. You know, wondering if people yeah. people in the past might have looked up there and seen like glowing, you know, the, those those big basaltic, um, uh, what they call the mares uh, on the moon, which were you know thought to be oceans possibly of water but we now know that they're big basaltic outflows of lava like you imagine looking up there and having those being glowing red like they were actually right. the lava and the you know the face of the moon is entirely changed by that uh but yeah it's it's you know the the standard model now considers all that to be several billions of years old um right but who knows yeah, yeah. All I right. want to go well, back before... real, real quick. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, but I wanted. Go for I it. was just thinking about this. Uh, going back to the idea of uh, the forewarning. What if we take a modern scenario and just kind of use this as a thought experiment? There are, in you know, um, hunter gatherer societies that still exist that are basically in the Stone Age of technology, in in modern day, um, and. You know, I've heard a lot of people like Graham Hancock, for example, talking about how those people would probably be the most likely to survive some type of cataclysm that wipes out technology because we're so used to all of these uh, luxuries that we have. It would be very hard for us to just go out in the woods without clothes and survive. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So if we did become aware that we were that there was going to be some impact and we couldn't stop it. And we weren't, we didn't know how bad it was going to be. It would be smart to maybe go kidnap one of those people, <laughs> right? Cause as you can't just walk in there and try to talk to them. I mean, in, in many cases people have, and they've been, they've been killed. I know some in particular, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Are pretty hostile, but we could go yeah. kidnap one of them and figure out how to communicate this to them and then put them back into their society before mm-hmm. this happens, right? So they have the forewarning and then they go back and try to communicate it to their society like hey, we have to we have to prepare. Yep. And so what would their, you know, <laughs> I mean, what would their stories be in the future after the cataclysm wiped most of the advanced world off the map? That's just really That's right. interesting to think about. Yep. Then eagle came and took them to heaven. That's right. And gave them the warning about the destruction to come. Yes. Yeah. And then put them back. And then yeah. brought them back, and then they were able able to communicate it to their people and prepare. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is interesting that you bring that up because now I want to go into the UFOs. There you go. <laughs> All right. So good segue. Um, I know you guys did, and I listened to it a couple of times. That four part UFO series with Marty Garza. And, and man, he is just a wealth of knowledge as he doesn't claim to be a researcher. He, he is a observer. So he's just kind of like taking everything in when it comes to, uh, UFOs and that ladies and gentlemen, if you listen to anything about UFOs, you're going to want to listen to that four part series on their show, um, or on their podcast. It's definitely, uh, an eye opening. um, experience to listen to marty talk and it was uh fantastic so where do you guys now fall with the idea of ufos and what do you think is really going on and what do you think the government's gonna do ready go everything (laughs) (laughs) well i can say with with the government i'm not holding my breath uh same yeah i i very much doubt that 
and this this is because of the 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 ideas that I've developed about I've been studying the UFO stuff for a long time too. I'm not a researcher in it either, but I'm an interested bystander basically. Uh, I was very fascinated, and I was trying to say this at the very beginning of the show by your accounts. I would say that you guys had what I consider to be a classic giant triangle sighting, right? Is that basically what happened? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I would it. it if I say that it profoundly changed me, it did because of the knowledge that I had coming into uh, before we saw that thing. Now, my wife may have a different idea about what it did for her, but for me, because I have a background in science, a background in uh, aviation, I've been in the military, I've jumped out of airplanes, you know, and, and I've always been a very rooted kind of a person but when i saw that thing it 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 changed my whole i'm not gonna say it's a spiritual thing because it's nothing like that it's a everything that i've learned about science when it comes to aircraft or vehicles or whatever was totally thrown in the garbage can and it was that shock of this is not true, but it is true. Now, what do we do? And I was only interested in getting out of there. I mean, it was a, for me, it was like, I don't know what the heck's going on, but I did not have a good feeling. And so, you know, it was, it was a huge rush of emotions and, you know, and Michelle will tell you one of the things she said, one of the first things she said was, when did our military get something like that? Yeah. yeah, that was the first thing out of my mouth. <laughs> right. And I was like, we don't have that. That is the thing is, is 300, 200, 300 feet aside. It's a perfect triangle with three lights that are globes in each angle. And it's hovering there. And I would say it was probably about two stories high. And it was, it was like the size of a, a box store, like a Walmart or, or whatever. And it's just kind of moving toward us on a very busy road in a, in a city uh, that is a suburb of Michigan. And as we were getting closer to it, I was merging onto the expressway. So I was losing sight of it as the driver, but Michelle had visual of it. And as I'm going, doing the, what we call the Michigan U-turn, you know, the, the on-ramp type of thing, uh, I saw this thing rotate, you know, 90 degrees to the right, which put it parallel to us moving on the expressway and it did not bank. So I was thinking, okay, maybe it's some type of an, an aircraft and my eyes are playing tricks on me. It's two 30 in the morning. No, it rotated and then continued to move down parallel with us as we started to head South toward our house. So it was, uh, yeah, it reminds me of the Stephenville sightings here. Uh, lots of people reported some gigantic triangle that was so low and moving slow and they could, they, one guy looked at it through his rifle scope and could see details on the surface. And yeah, it was the size of a, like you said, like a Walmart or a box store and just hovering yeah. above, above you, like something that big should not do. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. With no sound, no, the, the orbs that were under, like underneath it, like in the, in the angles, in the corners, I guess you would say they were not like 
a spotlight. Like if you saw a helicopter and it had a, a landing light on or a spotlight on, you would see a beam coming out of yeah. it and it would be moving around on the ground. We were that close. No, there was no, there was light emitting, emitting from these orbs that were in the corner, but they weren't shining a beam. It was like Not a glowing focused. orb. Yeah. 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 It was, it was really, really bizarre. And it was at that point where I was like, uh, like a couple of days later, I, I filled out a MUFON report and I never heard anything back. And uh, it was at that point, I was like, you know, we should start a Facebook group to see if anybody else saw this thing. Yeah. And did, did, did you, did anybody else see it? Not from that particular mm-hmm. area. Wow. Not that, not that night, but over. Uh, to the west of us, people were uh, telling us that they had seen uh, a vehicle like that around um, maybe Battle about, Creek, Jackson area. Yep. And then um, one close to Willow Run in Ypsilanti, which is just about 15, 20 miles to the west of us here. Did you look through the MUFON reports to see if they got other reports on that same night? I didn't. I did not. That's what I, I was like going to do, through yeah. the. The National UFO Reporting Center. Mm-hmm. I started going through that data there, but that seemed to stop around 2000. I want to say 17 or 18. It was like some of the latest stuff. I haven't checked in a while, but um, but yeah. And then come to find out that Michigan has been home to all kinds of controversy, especially in the 1960s and 1966, where Heineck actually came here and yeah, swamp gas. <laughs> yeah, it was the famous swamp gas thing, and in it that did not go so well for him. Nope. But then everything got buried. Uh, so, yeah, that was. I'm sorry to go into that long story. It's like no, no, <laughs> I, I yeah, you I were going to ask about. That. I had questions because of, you know I listened to the show and I, I I had questions I wanted to ask about it, and you answered them. And, and yeah. yeah, so I so the the next question I would ask you is. Because you, you've, you've said many times on your show, like, you know, you didn't have a good feeling. It was you just wanted to get out of there. But let's say that uh, it happens again next week. What do you think you would do now? Have my camera in there, my phone in hand. Run towards it instead of run away. I don't know, Michelle, what would you do? Well, definitely record this one because at 2.30 in the morning when we first saw it, you know, the last thing in my mind was grab my phone and record. Yeah, it's right. more, yeah, more mesmerizing as far as trying to, like, get every visual shot I could in my head, and less of thinking, "Hey, let me grab my, you know, iPhone and record this at two thirty in the morning." Right. Yeah, and for and for me, I, I would say that if that happened now, I'm moving toward it. Exactly. See, without a doubt. Yeah. I want to know what this is now because it it affected me and it affected us to a point that you know in february of this year i was like we we need to start a podcast we're getting all of these stories and people talking to us on our facebook group that's you know almost three thousand members at this point with people explaining things just around michigan and it's uh i was like there's something going on and then we find out there's going to be this report and david fravor and the the navy releasing these videos and things like that and it was like all of this seemed to be strangely happening all at this time and you know us being teachers we're used to talking to people and uh 
we get the strange looks sometimes at work and stuff, but the kids all think it's cool. Yeah. Well, I have like (laughs) one person at work that I know follows the podcast and listens to it on a regular basis. And then I have a couple students that, you know, well, actually more than a couple students that found the podcast. Um, and then, you know, decided to pull out their phones and go, Hey, <laughs> during, is this your podcast during class <laughs> and start playing it during class? I'm like, Oh, you guys are, you're fun. That's great. Fun little creatures. You are. That's, that's great. <laughs> um, but it, uh, it definitely raises an eyebrow when I even mention, um, what Wayne and I are doing, um, as far as, you know, the skeptics that are out there. Um, so it, it's it's definitely hard to, to talk to folks. Well, I've, I've noticed too, that when I talk to people, um, when I've talked to people about it and I, and I say something, they give me some kind of a smart ass remark or the, the strange look. And I say, you do realize that the Navy has released information and, and videos and, you know, David Fravers out there. He's been on Joe Rogan and all these different shows. Uh, 60 minutes is covering this, you know, uh, it's hitting the mainstream, even though those people, I mean, Tucker Carlson, you know, they, they still have their stupid, uh, X files sounds and their little yeah. flying saucer noises. And I, I honestly, I cannot stand that stuff. It drives me nuts, but, um, you know, and I, and I present them with this and they're like, ah, it, it's, that's nothing. You guys are crazy. Yeah. You know, well, where, really, where did oh, you stand oh. before you guys had this experience? What was your were you interested in the UFO phenomena or were you skeptical of it? Where, what was your, I was, I was interested, but I wasn't, you know, fully vested. I didn't, I had never really seen any kind of a UFO before or, or anything like that. I was just, uh, you know, if there was a show on and I was bored, you know, yeah. Okay. (laughs) I'll flip this on and see what it is. Oh, ancient aliens. And, and that one, you know, just made me want to just smack my head into the wall and go, come on, humans weren't that stupid. Okay. That we need an alien intervention. Now, when I learned about the, 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 um, younger driest impact hypothesis and all that, I'm going, holy crap we were a lot more advanced because we've been here 300,000 years. I mean, it depends on what, you know, look at what we did in the last hundred years, last 200 years, technology wise, what would we do for thousands of years, you know? Um, but yeah, my, my whole, uh, my position on it beforehand was like, yeah, that's cool. Maybe one of these days I'll see something or, you know, whatever, but, you know, I was, I was never a proponent and I was never, you know, against it. It was just, uh, in a nice way. He's saying that he's Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, I was, so, and I, can I didn't say, have a dog in the fight. You I was going to say, I've always been Switzerland. I like my paranormal shows and you know, the, the, well, the different stories alien shows we, and movies. We, yeah. You know, humans love stories. That's why we like podcasts and books and we learn that way. I mean, you know, honestly, it's, you know, the stories are, are cool, but then when it, something really happens, it's like, uh, you know, and and honestly, if Michelle had not have been there with me, I probably would have never said anything. Well, I, I honestly, (laughs) because I had her to confirm that I'm not hallucinating. There is something there. Something is going on. Right. But, but uh, look at, look at what's happened. You had 
a, an experience, a sighting that lasted how long? A couple of minutes? Uh, at best, maybe two minutes yeah. because two minutes. I had my Jeep going pretty fast. <laughs> two minutes of your life changed you forever in drastic ways, probably ways that you still haven't really seen yet. Now you have a show that's talking to lots of people and changing their lives. So what I'm saying is, is this is what the phenomena does. And you can see this throughout the history of the phenomena, which is very long. Basically, you can trace it, you know, if you're looking at it in the right way, you can trace it as far back as there is human history. And it is, has been doing this to us for as long as we have history of recording it. And this is what I think about the phenomenon itself, is I see cases like yours, and they, they, they tell me, and I get a lot of this from, from Jacques Vallée, okay? Like, I love the way this guy approaches the UFO phenomena because he is, he's basically saying, all right, you know, they're unidentified. Uh, that let's, let's look at cases that are well-confirmed in terms of, oh, yeah, you got it. I see you you got Passport to Magonia yes. and Messengers and, of Deception. Uh, Yes, Excellent. thanks to Russ. So, yes, my books did arrive. Passport, so to, Mag- Passport to Magonia is going to change your life. I can guarantee oh that. And that's that's what happened to me. And then The Messengers of Deception is the next one because it is, it's, it's giving you another way to look at this and why. Like, in other words, science is designed to look at natural phenomena that in, in general is not intelligent, Right. For the most part, Correct. like you have, you obviously you got things like anthropology and that are looking at humans. Okay. But when it comes to studying natural phenomena, you know, a scientist's idea is like, I can put instruments out in nature and point them at the thing I want to see. And then I can study it that way. But what if the phenomena knows you're doing that? The whole, your whole system has to change, you know? So you see this in a sense with the Skinwalker Ranch stuff that the scientists yes. went out there with the idea that they were going to just do science on this phenomena, but they didn't take into account that the phenomena was probably smarter than they are. Right. It was, it was going to react to yeah, them. It yeah. knows they're there. Right. And it can, it can decide to be deceptive. Whereas natural phenomena, it doesn't do that. You know, we know animals hide from people, but they're not necessarily being deceptive. They don't not, they're not able to trick you because you're kind of above them on the intelligence scale or something like that, right? Especially if you're just looking at physical phenomena. Like geology is not going to purposefully try to mislead you. Okay. It can't. It's correct. Right. But you can conduct uh normal types of experiments on on these things versus uh uh something that might not want to go in the cage. <laughs> right. And you know, so in and another way you can compare in a sense, you can compare UFO phenomena to astronomical phenomena. In other words, it's a process that can't be brought into the lab in most cases, and you kind of have to wait for it to happen to be able to observe it, right? But astronomical yeah, yep. phenomena is probably not trying to deceive anyone. It's not purposefully making itself look like something it isn't. Now, it's possible that we may be misinterpreting things we see, but a star... You know, I mean, like, unless you go way out and go animism and say stars are also conscious, they're not trying to trick you, right? But the at the very least, even if you just take the ETH, in other words, the extraterrestrial hypothesis of UFOs, the basic idea there is that they're far more intelligent than us. So you can't do normal science on them, right? It isn't a normal phenomena. And then the other thing that I that I 
that I like to point out to people, especially when it comes to disclosure, is that people think of the governments as being as hiding these secrets and everything like that. I'm like, well, no, because in this case, the actual data is coming from outside the government. In other words, the data that takes place that the government may be hiding from people is originating out in the world, out of the control of the government. Correct. Which means that the the fact that this phenomena is still totally not understood and is secret and it is esoteric is a result of the phenomena itself, not governments. You know, governments might be right. helping it be secret, but they're not the source of the secrecy. The phenomena itself is the source of the secrecy and the misunderstandings and the not knowing what it is. Which is why, like, no matter what the government discloses, it, and unless it coincides somehow with the phenomena itself coming out in the open, it isn't going to tell us really what's going on. Because they don't, they don't know. Yeah, wh- whether the government knows more, I think that they have a lot of data, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they know what it is. That's right. They may have a lot of data, and a lot of it could be good data, and a lot of it probably stems from our military and other scientific instruments. And, you know, satellites that and they're not going to be able to disclose that stuff because it's sources and methods. Right. We, we you know, they have strict, Correct. strict rules about uh, like we can't tell you about this sighting, not because we're trying to keep aliens secret from you, but because the instruments we're using to detect it can't be disclosed to our enemies. Right. That kind of thinking. Correct. Uh, yeah. And that's just that's just going to be how it is, no matter what. Uh, we're not going to be able to get around that. Um, and so there's going to be lots of government data that are, is not going to be able to be disclosed because it was taken by instruments that are still secret in terms of our tech. So, uh, but to me, it really goes back again to the phenomena itself. Whatever it is, it itself is the source of the secrecy. That's a big clue to me uh, about what's going on here. Another big clue is that it's been around for forever and there are too many sightings for it to be random aliens showing up from a different place. There's just it's just there's too much, you know, unless they're and they just take different forms. Yeah, yeah. It it, it takes different forms or it's reported differently, you know. But like yeah. if again, when you go through case after case after case after case, patterns begin to emerge. And I'm not talking about cases of whether these cases can be merged into these cases, I don't know. But there, there are two. Basically, there, there are very well established cases that have multiple different avenues of observation. Whether it's different sensors, whether it's multiple people, versus the one where one person saw something and it's not confirmed by anyone else. Right now, you guys had a sighting that I would, I would like to know if the MUFON database has anyone else that was. I mean, surely there were other people driving on that highway when you guys were there, right? Uh, it there was, were a few other cars. How but could they have not seen it? The, yeah. Well, that's just it, and, and that's that's a pattern that I've noticed with people that that we have talked to as well. Is that one, two people see these things, and everybody else drives like they're they're oblivious. Uh, one uh, gentleman we interviewed, Guy Merritt, who had an experience driving south of Flint. He, you know, was driving on the expressway, saw this thing. He got within a very similar object, got within a hundred feet of it, driving slow. And people were just driving around him like they, they didn't see it. And were like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, get out of our way, you know, and had no, and he's like, there's this, 
giant triangle right there by the expressway. Now it was two 30 in the morning for us. And it just so happened. I happened to glance up and, and see the three lights that, that first caught my attention because I was thinking if that's an aircraft with landing lights, first of all, they're too far away. Second, they're very low. They might crash here on this road. Uh, third of all, why are they pointing straight down? Because landing lights on aircraft do not point straight down. Yeah. Maybe spotlights do, but you know they shine kind of down and forward. Right. And then I'm like, these things are not shining. They're just emitting some type of a light. And that's when I could see the the edges of the craft. And, and it was almost like it was, a f- I, I hate to say this, but it, it, and when I saw it and, and what I saw the reflected light off the ground from the, the street lights and stuff were shining up toward this thing, like reflecting off the concrete, it was almost like it was a predator type of a, a, a skin that was absorbing the light. And so you could just see around the edges And as we got closer and I started to make that turn onto the expressway, I could actually see a thickness to the, the craft. And it it had to be a good 30 feet uh, from bottom to top. And uh, yeah, but the, the skin was, and I say skin almost like chameleon type, the, the way that it was using light and where the light wasn't reflecting on it. You couldn't see a thing. Yeah. Was it blocking out the sky behind it? You know, I mean, could you tell that? Uh, it was, uh, I could not tell. Uh, it was just, I think it was because I didn't see any stars, though I don't recall what the weather was like that night. Yeah. And, and, you know, us living in a big city, you know, we have lots of light pollution around here. So, you know, not seeing the nighttime sky and stars and things like that, it, it, that's kind of a normal thing. Um, yeah, but with, with with a place with a lot of light pollution, if there's cloud cover, sometimes the clouds are reflecting that light too. So, you yeah, know, you could you might see the figure of some large craft overlaid over the background of the clouds that were lit up by the city lights. Yeah, I just remember it being just dark, and I was transfixed on this on this thing and what it was going to do, and getting the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think- remember the the lights from the the stores in that area and, and the street lights definitely did help magnify as far as the the lighting up of the underneath yeah okay yeah but i but what oh. i'm asking basically is you guys think possibly you saw it just by a fluke like it is possible for people to drive on that road and just have never noticed it is that what you're saying probably probably i i i would i would think so yeah it was uh I know some people will say like, well, you know, these, these things reveal themselves to people that they want to, you know, it starts to get into the woo woo kind of a a thing and, you know, space brothers, you know, Hey, we're here and we want you to start a podcast and all this stuff. (laughs) Right. Um, no. (laughs) Right. But it did do Uh, that to you. Right. Well, it's not in a, not in a space brothers way. Yeah. Right. It it seems like that's the path that this has pulled us into. Um, And and like I've told people before, this is just uh, uh, a, it's a crazy, crazy ride. And, and how, you know, and, you know, Michelle calls me a, 
a, a giddy little boy on Christmas when I get verification that Ben's coming on and then you guys were coming on and and we're going to be talking to Johanna here uh, in a few days. And, you know, and we get to talk about these things because to me, it's like you guys out there are the ones that I want to hear our story and give us information and all these other people are interested. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so so okay, so going again back to what do I think this phenomena is? Um I don't I, I can't say that I have an idea of what it is. Like, you know, I mean you've listened to our show, so you know how I am about yep. this kind of thing. I like to say, well, let's just say what it isn't. Um, and in this case, I, we can't even do that, really. All we can do is look at the patterns. In some way, this is similar to 411. You look at all these cases and patterns begin to emerge. Whereas when you look at one case, it's just it's an outlier. It's strange. Um, so you have to look at a bunch of cases and see, are there patterns that emerge from these cases? And there are patterns that emerge from these cases. And one of the patterns is how it changes the life of the person who had the, had the experience. It's drastic. Uh, yes. And it changes their actions forever. Uh, and plenty of people have had these sightings and have gone on to try to tell as many people about them as possible. And this goes all the way back into recorded history. You know, the whole signs and portents in the sky, right? It, it, it that's basically what you guys saw. I'm not trying to put woo on what you saw because what clearly your right. experience was, in your in your impression, you you it was a technolo- it was technological in nature. You know what you saw was a craft. You didn't experience any beings or any visions, as far as I know. Uh, correct, that's correct. Right, but it it nevertheless changed you drastically. Now imagine if that thing had landed and something had come out of it, and then it told you a whole bunch of bizarre things that didn't make any sense. Did some really strange stuff. Handed you some salt, and then got back in the thing and left. You know. How much more would that have changed your, and how much would that have made you even more reluctant to talk about what happened? Or maybe you would just say, well, we saw the craft, but I'm not going to tell anybody about that weird bipedal thing that came out and gave me some salt, you know, (laughs) uh, or, you know, and, but when you look through the history of sightings, what I just, that, that basic story I just told there is common. It's common. That's what, that's what really it affects me. And then you can keep going back, which will you'll see this when you read Passport to Magonia. You can keep going back through history and see that the patterns keep emerging all throughout history of these kinds of things. People just didn't call them spaceships or aliens. But that's because but this was, you know, pre-technological, the idea of something flying. But you can go back to the the eighteen hundreds in the Amer uh, in the American continent, just in the US, and there were what they called airship sightings. There's ghost rockets. There's the fairy folk uh, uh, stuff in in Celtic countries. You know, I read that entire, there's a book, a really good book called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. And we actually went through some of it on our podcast. And you get similar stuff, lights in the sky, uh, flying houses. The fairy folk are like, think of the common description of a gray and think of like a goblin, you know, which is part of the fairy folk lore. Uh, you know, they're, they're small, they're weird looking and they have big eyes and they're scary. They kidnap people, uh, people disappear. They have missing time. They, they go away for some time and they come back thinking they've been gone for a couple of hours and they've been gone for days or weeks. Uh, but there, but this phenomena, but the, but when you look at the way the, the fae folk work, 
they are at the edges of or just beyond the edges of the civilization that they're interacting with at the time. Right. So the people then consider them to be magical, but they are also they are also better than humans. So there's this concept that this phenomena is constantly injecting the concept into humans, a, a widespread belief that there is something beyond people that is above people. Right. More powerful than us, stronger than us, has better magic or technology or whatever it is. Uh, and that human that human lives are affected by this changes them forever. You know, and there's all the just and, and you can keep going back and find more of this. There's the flying discs that you see in, in ancient civilizations, especially in in uh, in the Fertile Crescent. You know, you've got Assyria, you've got Ahura Mazda. Right. He's a disc with wings and there's the guy sticking out of the top of it, uh, you know, and he's coming down and telling people to do things. And he's acting as though we call this the God Gambit. I got this from a science fiction story where it's it's you're not a god. But if you're if you're sufficiently high high technology and you're interacting with somebody who isn't, you can appear to as a god to them, and that may be the simplest way to interact with them to get them to do what you want in that context is to appear as though you're like the creator of the universe, right? And they'll just yeah. they'll just do what you say because you're coming down and giving them commandments, right? Instead of having to explain all these technical details, you just say what you need to do is this and this and this, right? And this this happens with with this phenomena and in some cases it may be that you know i think marty goes towards this idea of like how many religions have been started by this phenomena whether the phenomena intended to start a religion or not that's the result and uh i think that's a, a and jacques valet does this too you know he's looking at this and saying how much of our past and our history and our stories are are have been started and spread by this phenomena and the interaction between humans and this phenomena, right? You know, the phenomena does stuff yeah. to people and then people take that interpretation. And in some cases you can find like, this is the thing. There are UFO cults, like literal UFO cults yes. that believe in space yeah. brothers going to save us or believe in the Pleiadians or whatever. And these are always started by people who think they're in contact or claim to be in contact with something greater than they are. Right. And those are these are modern. That's a modern phenomena. But you see similar patterns going throughout history of people basically interacting with things in the sky and then going out and be, becoming a prophet of, <laughs> of this thing that they saw in the sky that they call God. Uh, and I don't know. I feel like wh whether we can really connect all these things together or not, I don't know. But the patterns emerge when you look at the stories. And to me, that's the key is that that it makes it that makes it far too complicated for it to be a simple extraterrestrial right. hypothesis uh it's possible that they're actual aliens and that they are actual physical nuts and bolts craft and they're actually here doing this and they have been doing it for thousands of years possibly they live really long possibly they have ways of moving around through time i don't know but the point to me is is that whatever the phenomena is it has been with us and interacting with us for as long as we can look back through recorded history. And it's too similar to us to really, it, that, that points to something about evolution and the ideas of evolution. You know, why are they bipedal? Why can they, in a lot of cases, breathe our air? You know, some people with the technological ideas say, well, they're designed to breathe our air and they're actually like, you know, they're like androids or something. But they're like a drone. Yeah, they're yeah. drones. Uh, I don't know what the Navy is looking at, you know. 
but that the idea of these things coming in out of in and out of the water is not uncommon either in the historical records of this kind of stuff. Uh, so I don't know. To me, the 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 idea that the government is going to be able to dis- disclose information about how actually weird and complex this phenomena is is I just don't see it happening. You know. Yeah, it really seems like you could go all over the spectrum. I mean, uh, one thing that keeps on going through my mind as you were talking was these these things throughout human history have been seems like they've been kind of shaping where we go or uh, how how to start over again. I mean, back into the younger Dryas kind of a thing. Um, who who started uh, the people that's helped you know, the survivors. Um, yeah, it's, it, it just, I look at it and I go, okay, why am I interested in all, why am I an earth science teacher and astronomy and, and, and teaching people about, you know, the dynamics of earth volcanoes, earthquakes, you know, the different layers. And then we see a UFO and then, you know, I'm learning all of this stuff that I can about the, the younger uh, driest impact theory because I've been questioning it since I was in college that it just didn't make sense, and then boom, here we are. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's really bizarre the way that you say, okay, well, they they the the patterns seem to show that they've been interacting with us and and helping shape kind of what we do. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting no. That's too woo woo on it. No, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. And I don't think this is woo because it's the you can go woo by by extrapolating further and further about what they're trying to do. But it is it's a fact that these kinds of experiences change people, and it changes them drastically. You know, uh, that's just that's not woo. Uh, whether the p- phenomena is doing that on purpose, uh, and whether it's got this. 10,000 year plan, you know, I don't know. Right. Uh, but again, I, I, I'll, I'll be really interested to hear your podcast after you finish passport to Magonia. <laughs> I can't <laughs> wait to hear what you have to say about it. I mean, that just, I, I guarantee you, man, that you're going to eat that book up, you know, and, and I'll just tell for your listeners who might be interested as well. Uh, yeah. the, it's it's only really the first two thirds of the book you have to read. The last one third of the book, the final third of it, is a, a is a uh, database of cases, which is okay. Which is, yeah, I was flipping through it, and that's what I had. Uh, yeah, when I first saw those last pages, I was like, oh, this is like dates and information. Yeah, and that's oh. a database of cases from one hundred years. Okay, so he 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 basically says we picked yeah. this period, and here's a database of of well confirmed cases that we have. Uh, in other words, cases with multiple multiple different sightings of the same thing, different sensor platforms, whatever. Uh, so it's not yeah. just the ones where you know one person saw something in the woods and reported it. It's it's what he considers to be better data than that. Not necessarily that those kind of cases are bad. It's just when there's no confirmation anywhere else, it's harder to say this is a real thing. So when right. you're trying to be scientific about it, you say, okay, if multiple people saw this from many different angles and you know one of them was a pilot, one of them was a police officer, uh, and then in some cases you can get a line of travel you know, where you see it in this, starting in this area and then that person saying it's going in this direction and then you can find multiple people along that line of direction seeing it at, at, you know, at similar times. 
it's that kind of cases. But really, it's the first two thirds of the book where he just goes through. Here's what I've been finding in the historical record. Here are the patterns. When you compare these patterns of this historical stuff to the patterns that emerge from studying the many cases we have from modern the modern period, you see that the patterns are very similar. And that makes you question everything you think you know about the about the phenomenon itself. You know, a lot of people think that this started with the explosion of nuclear bombs, but that is not right. that's not the case. And it's weird when you're looking at ancient or not not even necessarily ancient, but things where people are talking about a ship in the sky. But it's what when they say ship, they're talking about a boat. Right. And it's dragging anchors along the ground. And yet the pattern of the experience and the things that happen to the people that see it are the same things that happen to people that see like these technological looking spaceships now. So that makes you wonder like, well, what exactly, how is this phenomena interacting with people? You know, it has like, the, the simplest thing is to say it's got some weird cloaking device that just makes you see it as some kind of technology that you can understand, but it's a little bit beyond what we could do, like a flying boat. You know, or is it our brains? Is it is it our brains interpreting? It's not on their end. It's it's the way that our brains work when we see, uh, you know, things that we can't necessarily comprehend. So we start to put into place, you know, hey, there's three lights triangle. Oh, it's you know, and we start building it in our head in a split second. It's on our end, maybe not on whatever these things are. And it's just our, what happens to us when we run into them. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird because then you have the Tic Tac video, right? You have, it's like, that's on video. If, if that was true, then we would all see something different on that video flying through the air. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it seems like the, it, it seems really like that the phenomena itself is the one making sure it appears in a certain way to the people it appears to right it, I, yeah, I, there is this I tend to agree. there is this idea of co-creation and this is where you're merging in with paranormal ideas that in some ways we're but this that this also stems from the philosophy philosophy that in some ways we're creating the reality we live in by experiencing it you know now on a subjective level you can definitely say that everybody is has a subjective vision of reality and that's affected by all kinds of complicated processes that are happening in their lives. Yeah. Uh, and so their versions of reality are slightly different from everybody else's because, number one, their perspective, which is which centers around, you know, right behind their eyeballs in their head, is that it's unique. Right. But in another sense, you, you've you've got the idea like, is there an objective reality? And those things seem to merge in this co-creation idea. But when you're looking at the phenomena itself, and this is another thing that Jacques Vallée points out, is like how much of this is people trying to interpret something that they didn't understand versus the phenomena itself making sure that it appeared in a certain way. Like dragging an anchor, a boat anchor along the ground is not a misinterpretation of a flying saucer. Right, it's too, right. It, it's too specific, right? And there isn't just one case of that. There's multiple versions of this case, and there's like kind of a flap of the of this floating you know flying ships that are dragging anchors along the ground (laughs) you can't even imagine that somebody would would say you you could you could imagine somebody saying well the only thing i can think of is a giant boat in the sky but when it starts dragging anchors along buildings and doing damage and people see somebody you know it's that that's that's different 
That's 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 more than co-creation. That's more than your brain putting things there that aren't there or you trying to interpret some technological thing into something you can understand like a big boat. Yeah. Man, that's a rabbit hole. Yeah. And that's not, that's not even talking about the rabbit hole of, of the fae folk, you know, that that people seeing, uh, like you know, fairy nests. You know, you go out into a field and there's a big flattened circle of grass or or crops, and they're like, "Well, the fairies were dancing here last night." Right. Well, you know, and they saw spinning lights out there. Maybe the anchor was uh, the the surface to air recovery system. You know, like they have pe- they have people on the ground, like they the they oh, do yeah, this yeah, now. Yeah. They have they they drop this thing, and the guy on the ground puts up a little balloon. Yes, and a tether. Yep. Yeah, there you and go. The plane flies by and just yanks the guy <laughs> up and snatches him up. Yanks in the air. So, yeah, right. it was uh, that's what they they were just like. Oh, it was a ship in the sky, and they were dragging this anchor. It was yeah, you know the, they you accidentally <laughs> deployed the surface to air recovery system, <laughs> <laughs> and it was yeah. just tearing through the town. Right. <laughs> right. Oh man, yeah. I, but hey, I, 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 I can construct a woo scenario. I mean, I, I love. All right, Kyle, let's go. <laughs> I love uh, looking into the ancient, uh, you know, the ancient texts and all this kind of stuff. And and just the thing that it comes to mind for me is just that, like, you could imagine the gods throughout history are part of this phenomena, and at certain, if if they were say a continuous type of civilization or an organized society that they may have different policies at different times. And so it looks like in the past at various times, they had policies of like full disclosure, you know, so they're the whole pantheon of gods, like all these people that are dealing with planet earth or, or people from wherever they they come, whether it's, you know, if they're deep in the ocean or they're just in the, in the nearer solar system or whatever, they're just coming down here all the time. They're ruling, uh, on earth. Uh, they're telling people what to do. They're having people build temples and all this kind of stuff. And just, just interacting with basically full disclosure. Right. And then at certain times they're like, okay, this is a bad idea. Things are getting out of hand. <laughs> this like, didn't work out so yeah, well. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's pull back. And, you know, here's the new rules of engagement. And so all we are left with is these stories and old buildings that we don't know how they were made. And, uh, yeah, back when the gods ruled the earth and now they're just in secret. But they, you know, they've been following us throughout history. Uh, So it's kind of Sitchin-esque, right? I don't know where they came from. I mean, Sitchin had the idea of, uh, you know, Nibiru, like they're coming from some rogue planet that was captured. And I mean, who knows? Uh, but that's, that's kind of where I, where I go with the, with, with the phenomena, right? There's, and I think that's what bothers me as well is that, you know, it's not so much the experience, but the motivation, I, I, I don't like, and and I, I kind of feel like I'm the United States here. I don't like things violating my airspace that I don't know about, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know? And so that's what makes me uneasy when it, and and that's why I'm, I'm against the whole space brothers here to save us from ourselves and nuclear war. And and I'm not going to say I'm a hundred percent against that because I don't know, but because I don't know makes me very distrusting of what's going on. What is the motivation here? I mean, 
why did we see it and nobody else stopped and pulled over or, you know, why did I want to get out of there? And, uh, and just, you know, what, what are these things doing? What is their purpose? Well, in and out of the ocean from outer space, they drop from 80,000 feet down to a foot above the ground in a second, you know, they've got the radar tapes of this and then they go into the water. And I mean, it's really disheartening. (laughs) It's like, what are you doing? Why are you here? What's going on? Well, I mean, put yourself in any like major metropolitan area full of people and try to ask the same question of all of those people. And there's not going to be any, like there's hardly going to be any answer that's the same as the next one, right? They're all doing different things. They all have different motives. They all, some people are good. Some people are evil. You know, some people are trying to do something that's not cool. And some people are trying to be, you know, do, do something that is, that's great. So, I mean, if you, if you imagine that there are intelligent beings that are part that, that are, the cause of this, ultimately the cause of this, these phenomena. Um, why should you assume that they all have a single goal? Right. I, I, I think that true, unless there's some kind of hive mind, the goals are going to be all over the place. They could, you know, from one guy to the next, they're going to be different. And some might be, uh, trying to help people. Other ones might be messing with people. Other ones might just be, just you know playing a joke i don't know it's just it looking for cattle apparently (laughs) yeah Yeah. right my favorite idea is that they're a deep ocean civilization and they've been here and have been advanced longer than we have i really like that idea i don't think i i can't i obviously don't like it to the point where i'll say that's what's happening but that's one of my favorite ideas or they could be a deep surprise they could be a deep ocean civilization from like one of the moons of jupiter or something yeah that's right they could have come from yeah from jupiter yeah that's interesting yeah we know less about our ocean than we do outer space and the the whole universe so well who knows the stuff we know about in the universe is all exploding so right <laughs> the stuff that isn't exploding we hardly know anything about because you can't that's see tr- it that's true <laughs> <laughs> oh wow all right so i guess we should uh man we've been going at it for two hours and 20 minutes <laughs> Jeez. yeah now that's a conversation that's <laughs> yeah, been great uh, yeah. I, okay. So I, I need to talk to you about a couple other things just real quick. And uh, um, so we're going to switch gears here. I want people to know a little bit more about you that listen to us and maybe never uh, listened to your podcast. So um, talking with Ben and knowing a little bit about you guys, I know you guys are involved with the contact at the cabin, uh, the tours out West that you do with uh, Ben and Randall Carlson and things like that. Can you give us a little bit of information on that for our audience and what they could do if they wanted to get involved in that? Yeah, we um, one of the main reasons we've started the podcast, uh, aside from, you know, just us having conversations about it, is that we want to go to these places that we talk about, these sites that we're interested in, whether it's whether it's to look at geology or to look at ancient civilizations or mysterious ancient structures 
so right. the contact at the cabin is sort of um it's a it's our we've joined in with the guys from Grimerica, the Grimerica show. Uh those dudes are from Canada and uh they they started doing these trips where for them it was ba- it's basically started out like let's get some of our listeners and go somewhere cool and hang out for a weekend, you know. Uh, but it right. turned into a full blown like let's get a talent like somebody who we've had on our podcast, uh, like Randall Carlson, and go somewhere where Randall can show us around at stuff that's really interesting and bring a bunch of people and people sign up and um, and so that's what we're doing with with Contact at the Cabin. Uh, so we're we're basically teamed up with with those guys and Ben now has joined the team, which means we'll be going around the world looking at weird geology and weird ancient sites. Uh, so we just did a Scablands contact at the cabin, which means we went up to uh, Washington State to look at uh, evidence for the enormous meltwater pulses that came off of the ice sheet uh, at the end of the last ice age. And right. we spent a week driving around, and, and Randall, t- we'd stop at places and look at these enormous geological features, like relict cataracts, you know, like that are basically, that used to be waterfalls far larger than Niagara, uh, where enormous amounts of water were pouring o- off the ice sheet and across the landscape and tearing everything up in its path. Uh, so that was a mind-blowing experience. We're doing that again in September of this year, if anybody wants to go. Uh, so certainly you can check out contactatthecabin.com for information about trips we're doing with those guys. And we're also looking at doing stuff with Ben aside from contact at the cabin going down to Peru. Uh, and we do have a contact at the cabin trip, uh, for Egypt for 2022 at the end of the year. I think it's going to be in November. Uh, and we're going to be, do- oh, wow. we're going to be doing a two week long, almost two weeks in Egypt, uh, looking at all the great sites, going to spend four or five days on a, on a cruise in the Nile, you know, five star accommodations going to all the all the places that might have been built by aliens. So it's going to be great. <laughs> Sounds amazing. <laughs> the aliens part was a joke, just in case anybody didn't know. Yeah, just got to say that. Uh, but yeah, well, it's, there is that one cartouche. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was I'm not saying it was aliens, right, but right. it was aliens. Yeah. yeah. All right. Awesome. That, that sounds so cool. I'm really hoping to get into uh, one of the, uh, he wants to go on a trip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I want to go out. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> I want to go to the channeled scabland so bad. Well, Hey, I mean, sign up, man. Just uh, send Darren yeah. an email. We're also going to be doing, uh, you know, Randall wants to uh, do a lot of different, what, what he's calling the backyard tours, which is the idea is that there's actually interesting geological and even you know cultural features in our backyards probably everybody that's listening probably has some stuff that's very nearby to them that they probably don't even realize that's there randall spent a lot of time you know looking at maps randall and brad um studying the features all over the united states and canada and in our you know basically in our backyard so he lives out in the uh near the east coast in georgia uh, the Atlanta area. And so he's wanting to do tours that are close to that. There's, and, and I think they're planning to do one this year. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, of options, you know, you don't have to, some of the trips are going to be more expensive. Some are cheap. We're also, uh, with contact at the cabin, looking at doing, uh, just some sort of hangouts that are, uh, like, uh, we're, we're in this planning stage of a festival, 
that's going to have music, bands, live music, uh, stage, and then you know we'll have some people there to do slideshow presentations and give talks. So it's kind of blending the traditional festival with the teachers that that can you know teach yeah. us things. We'll do stargazing and all of that kind of stuff to sort of blend the two ideas together. <clears throat> So there will be, yeah, yeah, and and that event would obviously be a lot cheaper than than going to Egypt, for example. Yeah, (laughs) it's going (laughs) to be incredibly expensive, but uh, yeah. So there's, we're trying to come up with some cool ideas that try to try to be able to involve everybody at some point at at different you know levels of. Yeah, and we've also got the April Matheson event. We're doing the contact at the canyons, is what they're calling it. where and that one is a little bit cheaper too, and where where we basically spend a long weekend in Utah, uh, and da- oh, and okay. Dave Matheson takes his takes us through his star myth presentations, and then we go out and look at stars in the high desert where you can see way more stars than any than you can see almost anywhere else in the world, and he has a laser and he points out all these constellations and then tells you the stories of the ancient myths about them and how they, you know, how these stories have been passed down throughout the ages. Now, is that anywhere close to uh, Skinwalker Ranch? Because that's in Utah. Yeah, yeah. Skinwalker it? is basically on the edge of the Uinta Basin. Uh, we're we're yeah. we're in the area of Bryce Canyon and uh, what's the other Zion one? Zion Canyon. Canyon. Okay. So we go to the canyons because those are fun and they're incredibly beautiful. Uh, and we spend a lot yeah. of time in those during the day, hiking around and looking at stuff, and then at night uh, we do stargazing. So. That the, it's it, we did one this year and we're going to do another one next year so people can look for that event as well awesome um and then i got kind of my standard going away questions like do you guys have any con or uh connection with uh michigan connections mm. with michigan i, I mean i could throw continent. one out there <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I'm really interested in uh, the copper mines. That's all. Yeah, I'm yeah. Say, We've dude. studied the we, copper oh, mines in Michigan. The, we yeah. want to go up there and check out those those copper mines. That'd be cool. Yes. Somebody in antiquity mined a ton, a lot of copper out of there. Yeah, and a it ton is not even. Yeah, close. it's not even it's, close. Yeah, there's a bunch of mines up there that have been almost like strip mined. You know, thousands of years. Yeah, ago. and nobody knows where the copper went. Well, there was a, I, I do know that there was some uh, um, looking, they're doing isotope uh, testing and they've found some of the copper, they think anyways, in Europe right. and in uh, parts of the Middle East, I want to say, in, in right. some of the bronze. Right. Yeah. The question is, is did the Michigan copper mines fuel the, the European bronze age? right it's that's really that, interesting. and that goes yeah. very much against standard model stuff and back to kind of yes. the atlantis question right this yeah. is where how yes. did they get over here and yeah so yeah that's a it, I, we definitely want to go up there and check that out and serpent mound and all that kind of stuff up 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 north yeah yeah that's uh there's also the um and i mentioned this with ben after we got off our uh meeting but um there's also the talk of Saginaw Bay being a mm-hmm. possible impact location right. and uh, kind of where all the Carolina bays, if you do the, the uh, triangulation and take into account the Coriolis effect of the, the earth spinning, that these were large, uh, these were impact sites that kind of originate from something that hit in Saginaw Bay. 
which, you know, I've never heard of that before in, in all my time in earth science and, and geology that that was a, a probable impact site. Yeah. Yep. And Saginaw so, Bay has characteristics of an oblique impact. Yeah. Um, it actually gets deeper as you go towards the shoreline. Like it, the, it was an oblique, oblique impact that came in from the north. So it's yeah. an interesting idea. Yes. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Have either of you had any paranormal encounters, spirits, ghosts, anything like that yourselves? Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that's it. That's well, all I you're mean, like, unless you want to be here another yes. hour. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, right, let well, me just tell you, can... I'll tell you quickly uh, of, okay. of a UFO uh, sighting. Right. Um, okay. Then it was just a like light in the sky type of sighting. And it was me, my wife and my parents. And we were all um, up. At, we had watched the sunset. We were, you know, hanging out, talking, having a glass of wine. And uh, my mom first noticed it. And it was it, it's like uh, sort of like a shooting star, but not fast enough. And. Uh, didn't change. Uh, it, it was I've I've watched a lot. I've done a lot of stargazing, and I've seen a lot of shooting stars. And I can, I know that this was not a shooting star by the way it acted. Um, far too slow for a shooting star. Far too fast for a plane. And yet it came from the direction of the city that's nearby. You can see the glow of the city off in the distance, and we're way up on a hill. And it it's coming towards our direction moving to the west and it looks like a dashed line blue and uh as it gets closer the dash gets longer and longer and when it finally is it's it's gotten overhead and then it's past us moving to the west and suddenly the dash splits into two lights and one of them changes 90 degrees and looks like it goes straight up and the other one keeps going and they both turn red and vanish and there was no sound associated. And I think the whole thing, we, we probably watched it for, I don't know, 10 seconds going wow. across the sky, which is, I mean, there are some shooting stars that will, that will last quite a long time, but they, they move in straight lines. They right? don't change directions. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it was right after we saw it, um, I, I went and asked each person, you know, okay, describe to me what you saw, right? I asked my wife, I asked my mom and my dad, and each one, we all described basically the same thing. Um, so that was really strange. And then Russ looked it up on on the MUFON reports. That's right. And, and found plenty of other people had reported very similar, a similar sighting at the, around the same time. Yeah. And in some cases, a larger object, a cigar-shaped thing that went over That's San Antonio. Right. Uh, oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. You guys are in Texas. I, I should have mentioned that to uh, our listeners that you guys are from Edwards, like the Edwards Plateau. Right. Is yeah. The like, Edwards, yeah. Edwards Plateau is, is an, is like the hill, Texas hill country. It's an uplifted area. Uh, San Antonio is right on the edge of it. Um, okay. So yeah. we're, you know, we're, we're far outside of the, out, out of San Antonio, deep into the plateau. Uh, surrounded by right. marine fossils from, you know, basically the KT boundary. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. If I was a new listener, 
what would your top rated shows be that you would want me to start listening to? Oh, man. <laughs> Another rabbit hole. Wait, oh, wait. <laughs> our shows or other people's shows? What are you talking? Which one? Are you talking about? No, your yeah, show. Which your episodes shows. of our show? Oh, it depends. Yeah. You know, it depends yeah. on it depends on what people are interested in. I I would imagine that new listeners coming from your podcast might be more interested in like what you said, the UFO series we've done with Marty. Uh, those are spread out in our feed because uh, we're not able to do them all in a row. But there's part one, two, three, and four, and five part part four point five or four a, and then five are coming up soon. Um, okay, awesome. Yeah, we're going to continue doing that with looking at that with Marty, and then obviously there's the recent uh, episode two hundred UFO show we did. Uh, I would say look at. If you can find them in the back catalog, the, we did a couple of episodes on the fairy faith in, Fult- in Celtic countries, um, just because I think that those stories coincide with this phenomena. Uh, and then we did a series, two episodes on a book called Anomalies, which also has weird stuff from the sky that we did. Um, and then Gods of Eden. Yeah, what I was going to say is the book reports is kind of like a... Kind yeah, of a unique thing to our show uh, that we like to do these deep dives into into various books that, um, you know, that we found interesting and sort of paradigm shifting for us. And we'll spend, uh, you know, six episodes on a book just going through it. Russ reads excerpts from the book and we discuss it. Um, and those are just great. I, I love them. So right. I would recommend checking out a book report. But uh, But the fan favorite is the epic of gilgamesh that is by <laughs> far the fan favorite you know the one that people tell other like uh, fans of our show will tell other people to l- listen to first where basically kyle okay. retells this most ancient story uh you know in his own words in one show and it's fantastic uh i think that's episode 67 so you might have to find it on the website because it's no longer in the feed okay and speaking of website uh, where can people find you guys and uh, merch? I've got my Brothers of the Serpent podcast shirt on. All right. So, uh, yeah, I had to, you know, try to bring in the the good vibe to make sure everything worked right. <laughs> <laughs> so I I, 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 wore, I wore Ben's Uncharted X shirt when I did the interview with him. I was like, I got to get the brothers. I got to get the snake shirt. So yeah. <laughs> Thanks, well, buddy. So where can they where can they find you guys on the web? Well, our website is brothersoftheserpent.com. Uh real simple there. And that has all the podcast related stuff. Like I said in the beginning of the show, it was originally started just to be the source of the feed, but now it's got a whole bunch of interesting stuff on there, uh, including our glossary of terms, because we use a lot of made up words on our show. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and it's got the encyclopedia, which is basically uh, somebody was asking me to kind of put together something where they could go through and see little like an encyclopedia entry on stuff that we talk about. Because, you know, we might we might bring up Sumerians and people don't know what that is. And, they you know, they can go to the website and get a little brief description. Uh, Do you guys have a book list on there like books? Uh, no book list. But reading? Uh, so most of that kind of stuff has been moved into our discord chat. So we have a. Okay. You guys have a Facebook group. There is a Facebook group for our podcast, but it's fan-operated. Well, there's a gigantic book list. That's right. It's the called Library. Library of the Serpent. The Library of the Serpent. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Oh, okay. That is linked from the website. Um, uh, that's a book list of either books that are able you're able to get free because they're in the public domain or links to buy them uh, from, from Amazon. 
but then also our Discord chat is very active. We've got uh, around 700 members. People are there's many channels and people are constantly. It's basically for fans of the show, but people are constantly talking about the topics we talk, we discuss on the show and going much more in depth. They have a book club there where they're all reading the same book and talking about it. Um, so, yeah, I recommend if you're really interested in this stuff, you can join the Discord. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I've I've poked around in there and I get lost. Yeah, <laughs> like there's so much going on. Yeah. And that Discord group. Yeah, you got to pick a channel and stick with it for a while, and then until you get used yeah. To what's so going I on. I find myself in the uh, in the UFO channel most of the right. time. So yeah, and uh, last but not least, before we let you go, any uh, big shows, uh, special guest, anything coming up that you can let us in on? <laughs> hmm. We never really plan anything that far in advance. Yeah, <laughs> we're just like. <laughs> You know, a lot of stuff is off the cuff, and uh, Russ actually does does uh, most of the planning for the show, and he's the most comfortable when we're in the middle of a book because he knows he doesn't have to plan anything. That's right. Yeah. But then when right. we start getting near the end of the book, he starts getting stressed out. What are we gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah, I know, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I. Uh, yeah, we can't let you in on any plans because we don't have any. Yeah. So that's, that's basically, I think that's what Kyle's basically saying. People yeah. are, people are always asking us like, well, can you give us a list of what's coming up? I'm like, well, we don't know that stuff either. You know, we, we find out what's going to be on the show almost as soon as they do. And we're not a guest heavy show. <laughs> so, um, occasionally, yeah. you know, the, the guests happen and, and we never know when it's going to happen or why. And we might just be we might come across some new piece of information. We're like, Oh man, we should get this person on. And then you never know if we, you can or when it's going to be. So it's just, yeah, it's kind of like, it really is just an ongoing conversation. That's our podcast. And, and so when we show up on, you know, on podcast day, it's continuing the conversation and things pop up in conversation that we weren't expecting. And we just go, we go with it. Yeah. So in a vague sense, I can tell you about, possibilities that none of this is in stone um but we have someone who has offered i asked and they offered uh recently that they could do it to come on and talk folklore from uh from the uk uh interesting celtic folklore so we may have that at some point we know marty is going to be coming back and doing more ufo stuff uh the first thing we're going to be doing with him is is he's going to be doing a, a whole episode on the skinwalker ranch stuff uh oh. yeah and then and, that's awesome yeah, it's gonna be really good and then that and then that will be followed up by ufos part five uh because i was just thinking about once i finish up a couple interviews we got going on this week and, and i'm gonna be kind of planning out in advance i was like man i really would like to get something about skinwalker ranch somebody from there or somebody that's lived there yeah on the show to talk about it because that place is that is like the singularity of all things paranormal. Yeah. Yeah. Skinwalker Ranch is so, a strange, strange place. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So, well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're going to wrap it up. We've kept them. Oh, one last thing. What do you guys, <laughs> I got, I got to ask, what do you guys, what do you guys do when you're not podcasting? I think people will find this interesting. Uh, well, we, um, we basically uh, work on a farm. We're farming grapes here in the hill country, and we make wine. Uh, we're fairly new at this, but uh, we've been doing it for 
you know, four, four or five years now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's basically what we spend our days doing. We're running a lot of heavy machinery, tractors and whatnot, um, dealing with the grapes, learning about, uh, uh, grape cultivation, uh, viticulture as it's called and, uh, and winemaking. So that's a great answer. I was going to say play playing video games. Uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. I you're don't right. I don't play much video games. <laughs> I also have a family. Kyle so. has a family. I, I don't. So when we're not podcasting and we're not farming, I'm playing video games. And I also have a band called Fifty Dollar Dynasty. Oh, yeah. And I oh yeah, we've been the music man. We've been working on a on an album for the. Uh, we've been in the final recording phase of the album for like two years. Uh, it's a weekend thing. Um, you know, and, and a lot of weekends often get taken up by other things, but we, we chip away at it every weekend that we can, and it's going to be fantastic. I can't wait. We're almost done tracking. Yeah, but it's not heavy metal. They're not going to It's like not it. heavy metal. Yeah. This is, it's, it's esoteric rock. <laughs> and, oh, that's, uh, that's fine, yeah, man. A lot of it, I listen to everything. A lot of it is themed towards many of these ideas that, that uh, I'm fascinated with, with, uh, you know, mythology and ancient culture and earth history and um, so it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens. It's, uh, it's definitely a new direction for us as a band and, uh, we're really looking forward to it. I, I think it's going to come out this year. So we're about to go into the mixing phase. Um, and then, then it'll be production and yeah, hopefully it, uh, should we, th- can we throw them a song for the end of the show? Uh, you guys want that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We'll, we'll put a, We'll put a song at the, million? at the end. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'll give you something for sure. Yeah, yeah. something nice and, cool. nice and hard rock. Oh, you want hard rock? Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll give, give you a million. Hard rock, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for give sure. us a little bit of the edge. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, this song is called A Million, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an older release. I can't even remember the release date, but, uh, but anyway, it's rock and roll. Yep. Cool, cool. All right, Michelle, do you have uh, anything you want to ask? I would like to know the name of the wine label that goes on the bottles that you guys produce. <laughs> <laughs> Turtle Creek Olives and Vines is the name of the winery. Okay. Uh, oh, and Turtle Creek is a casino we like to go to in ah, Traverse City, Michigan, wow, okay. which is wine country, too. Cool. That's weird. Well, so <laughs> just to give you a little more uh, information on that, we are basically the 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 industry down here is mostly direct to consumer that's the way we can make oh. money because it's it's very high quality wines like we're we're making the wines with the, in the very traditional way with all french oak uh aging and all of that and and basically at that price point it we don't do distribution so it's very yeah. local and then we have a tasting room in town and people can come there and we can sell it by the glass or we can sell the bottles we cannot ship out of state without a distribution deal. So yeah, it's, it's not likely you're going to see this wine somewhere unless somebody got it from us and then brought it. I have a brother that lives in Texas. I can make something. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make it happen. Yeah, we can, we can ship to people in Texas. I think they've gotten that. Yes. That taken care of. We can. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to end it there. Uh, we're going to listen to a song at the end of the podcast here. Um, please check out Serpents of the Podcast. 
Oh my God. <laughs> brothers of the Serpent Podcast. Serpents of the Podcast, serpents of the podcast brothers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Snakes. Snakes. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was great having you guys on and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. All right. It was yeah, a pleasure, thanks, man. That was one intense interview. Yeah. But good so times. awesome. Good times talking with Kyle and Russ. Yeah. They uh, have a lot of knowledge for, as Russ once told me, we're just a couple farmers. Yeah. But they're farmers of grapes, which means wine. <laughs> yeah. But they're a great couple of guys and i was very excited and happy to get them to come on the podcast absolutely and so in closing we're gonna go ahead and play one of kyle's songs and it will be at the end of the podcast here so kyle and russ thanks a million for being on the podcast if you want to check out the brothers of the serpent check our show notes for a link to their podcast all right everybody with that being said have a great night and keep your eyes to the sky.
You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.